This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. Hi, LSPod fans, it's JR here. Burt's Babes, Hoddle's Heroes, even Decanio's Dozens. We've had some iconic lineups in our history at Swindon, just like the legendary menu at McDonald's. Parkin' or Austin, sweet curry or barbecue? Why not get a McNugget share box to enjoy the debates with your mates? And thanks to book delivery, every drop-off can be a home win. Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points too. No one wants to drop points at home, and with tasty rewards to earn, you won't be missing out. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to The Lobe Strangers, a Swindon Town fan podcast with me, Rich Pullen. Rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside. Beautiful play! That is that! What a good shot! Oh, it's a goal! Far post for Shearer, goal! I will win this league anyway. Richard, he's hit it. It's Crabbley! Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Low Strangers podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. A favour. Please feel free to spread the word by telling anyone that you know with a leaning towards Swindon Town about the podcast. And if you could kindly give positive ratings and reviews wherever you can, that would also mean a great deal to me. My guest for this episode is Chris Tanner. Chris worked behind the scenes at Swindon Town between 2002 and 2013. For the majority of that time, Chris was Swindon Town's media and communications officer. I think it's fair to say that Chris experienced quite a lot during his time at Swindon. He saw a host of managers come and go from Andy King to Kevin MacDonald. Willie Carson was the chairman when he started. Jed McCrory was there when he left. And that's not to mention the hundreds of players he worked alongside. It was incredible to talk to Chris for as long as we did. I really, really enjoyed listening to his experiences. And I think from time to time, we were just talking as fans, which was which was great. My thanks goes to Chris for taking part. And of course, thank you guys again for listening. So it's time to sound the hooter for episode 17 of The Low Strangers. Enjoy. <laughs> Hello. 
Hello, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much for agreeing to be on The Low Strangers. No problem. No problem at all. Looking forward to it. Lots of people will know who you are. There may be some that don't, if they're new fans or just, you know, don't look in the background of the club. If you could just give me a brief summary of what you were at Swindon Town. I'll try and make it brief. In in short, I was press officer for 11 years, so uh, saw plenty of lows and a handful of highs. Very enjoyable time overall, but uh, I say Swindon Town is is never dull, as, as any supporter will know. And uh, yeah, I think we're, we're about to go down that road. When did your love affair, shall we say, with Swindon begin? Pretty quickly. It had been a Swindon, and Swindon was the, the kind of family club, really, you know, that my my grandparents had supported my my dad had always been a fan and I was just brought up on on Swindon Town really my uncle used to take me to the games and walking down Shrivenham Road and going to see the games and you know going to see my grandmother she uh, started the Robinettes sort of around the 60s so she was uh, sort of oversaw the Robinettes at the 69 final and all that kind of era so always remember that you know a, a photo at my parents house of of the sort of the Robinettes on the uh, on the empty Stratton bank all in fine pose and yeah it had just always been Swindon had been the club really so I didn't really have too much choice in the matter so what was your first game it was probably the back end of the sort of 92-93 season so things looking pretty good in terms of promotion and obviously then going up to the playoff final so it was that that season was the was the kind of first one I I remember a a handful of games at at the back end of that season but I wasn't actually allowed to go to the 93 final which was a a bit of a shocker there wasn't enough room in the car apparently when I was uh, you know sort of about 10 years old so yeah I wasn't uh, wasn't overly overly pleased with that and then I've you know got pretty good memories of the Premier League season tried to get to games where I, where I could I, I was away at school but always kind of following the games and you know I remember kind of head in hands I think the back end of the season when I think we'd already been relegated against Sheffield Wednesday and a couple of the games at the early at the start of the season just seeing you know especially say Boxing Day against Arsenal and although we got hammered it was you know just seeing these sides come down to Swindon and full crowds and everything else was pretty magical. My memories of going to Swindon in the early 90s really is rarely about the football itself. It's about the people around me, the old people swearing and the pipe smoking and things like that. I was fairly lucky. My my father had been involved with McLean Homes um, in sort of in Swindon, so he he was involved with the building of the what is now the Nationwide Stand with Ray Hardman, um, who was a, a sort of family friend really. So I'd been. Uh, he was sort of involved in that, so so we had a, a few chances to go in, in the old exact box, as it were. So I remember when Chelsea came back, um, I actually got sat next to Glenn Hoddle, which was quite an experience for that game. Yeah, it, it was just, but just the whole thing, it, you know, that sort of stuff didn't matter. You were just at football with your kind of Swindon scarf, and as you say, you get to know the people around you. And it was just really enjoyable, you know, although the games weren't, you know, often getting results but um, just things like you know Southampton at home when we got a win and it, it was just really as I say those floodlights are pretty iconic as well and it really just sparked a real love of, of Swindon Town that's never really faded. When you went into your role at Swindon were there any concerns that you were going to now potentially jeopardise your support for Swindon or were you just like get me in that club? Um, it was a difficult mix really because when I when I going into the job you were kind of mixing with players that you've been a fan of really so you know the kind of you know Danny Invincible and those those kind of guys you're going in having watched I mean I, I was in the South Stand for the, the Barnsley game you know Sam scored a hat-trick on his debut and you know all things kind of kick off well and I think I saw the job advertised in that program for the website and applied for it and then I think about the October I started but at that kind of time you're going in 
dealing with you know sort of Bart Grimmink and not they're not necessarily massive names but as a fan you're kind of going in there as a 19 year old thinking well hang on a minute these you know these are kind of proper players in inverted commas um, that changes over time as players go and other players come in and you you develop kind of different type of respect and different type of relationships as you're working and as you get more experience but definitely as you know the first couple of weeks in the job and, and certainly going in with Andy King as the first manager was a, was a baptism of fire, that's for sure. Did you have much experience? Um, I'd always been into kind of football reporting and I'd always loved match day programmes. Mm. My dad's been involved with Fairford Town for about 45 years and I used to staple the programmes together when I was about seven or eight years old. Um, and any game we went to, I'd always buy a programme, whether it be non-league or football league or Premier League. or I was just kind of fascinated by programmes and that's where it sort of sparked off, really. And then, yeah, I'd say I, I was due to go to America. I had a a scholarship to an American university for American football as a kicker, bizarrely. And I had to wait a year for the draft and stuff. So I was back here that summer and went along to the game, saw the job and thought, oh, actually, this could be a really cool year of just getting some experience and then and then go off to the States. But as it was, uh, Nick Judd, who was my, my kind of boss at the time, he left after about eight months um, and he was hugely helpful in kind of passing on experience and knowledge. And he, he passed on to sort of go to Man United's programme to go and do their... Um, their sort of match day program slightly more glamorous and then uh, after about say eight, eight nine months you know mark devlin i think at the time said look you know step up and and come and be press officer and at, at 19 that was a decision i thought well go and do the time in the united states but is this job going to be there at the end of it after mm-hmm. sort of three four years over there so i i stuck with stuck with swindon and although several times up at hartlepool on a friday night you did kind of question insanity austin going in In 2002 is a completely different beast to what it is now. Lots of what we take for granted today, for example, was yet to be launched. Uh, YouTube isn't around until 2005 and Twitter and Facebook aren't around until the year after that. What was your day-to-day operations at that time? Day-to-day, you were were trying to sort of dig up somehow five stories for the website, whether that be going to talk to Dick Mackey about an injury or covering a reserve game or, you know, just getting different stories and interviews. And I say, when I, when I started, Nick and myself were putting the programme together and I'd always thought the Swindon programme was, was pretty good. And, mm. and again, being able to just get an article in that, you know, you start off with really small things and, and just pushing things in there and learning the ropes of the programme and websites and things like that. But as you say, the job was, was very, very different back then. But um, as, as was the office, as we'll come on to, you know, it was just a really strange time to come in to be to be working at Swindon with you know the kind of administrations and you know I remember the first couple of months you know the phone just not working and being paid by check kind of three four five days late and which at the time I was living at home and you know it didn't affect me too much but as you say as as other kind of guests have come on and said it was really impactful and really worrying for them in that kind of environment. When you joined the club Swindon are already in administration um, in your early months what is it like within the office? We know the clubs. We talked to people like Matt Haywood and Reese and Sam Parkin about uh, about uh, their experiences. But it's surely far more serious a matter as well for the back office people because they're often when you when you see news reports the first to go. Yeah, I mean, there was a couple of people I think when you know during that kind of first year that I was there, and you're always kind of looking over your shoulder at things. And I think 
perhaps being you know one of the well, certainly probably the sort of lowest earner at the club at that point as a 19 year old and a lot of it you probably didn't understand what was going on you kind of just so focused on on doing your job but it was just a uh, playing wise you know lads just got on with it and but you know say with with the manager and coaching team and things like that and I say there was the whole sort of Neil Ruddock thing mm. hanging over as well I think one of my first week sort of knock on the coaching room door and you know razors there having a kip on the sofa and it's all just quite bizarre um you know the the atmosphere at the time but as you say it was uh he sort of just got got through that that season and I say I, I stepped up job wise but quite a surreal time to to be involved and what is the day-to-day of a press officer we've done the website what about the press officer side of things which you did for a long time Oh, uh, no day the same, which was good. Um, you know, Swindon being Swindon, there's always something comes up. You, you you just think other clubs don't have this, and there was just so much that that happened at Swindon that you you just kind of look at your phone or you know get an email and just sort of head in hands, or you just try and got to sort out another kind of mess. But um, the the good thing was the relationships I think with the local media having you know the the BBC and the Adver and and a, a sort of handful of local press you could get really good relationships with and and again I think we were really lucky with the with the quality of of sort of output that, that we had from them as you say he then had the bigger games it was just a, a kind of crazy amount of interest and like you know when sort of Charlie Austin came along and De Canio and all that sort of stuff just a whole nother ball game but at that time it was it was just sort of three and four people at the training ground all the media was done at the training ground then and um so one one of the ones I do remember was as a as I say a kind of a youngster going up there and I think we'd signed uh, Colin Heath and Tom Heaton on loan and uh, took him up to up to the training ground and sort of Kingy's there and you know you're expecting to watch training and Kingy kind of welcomes them to the training ground and opens his boot gets the golf clubs out and it's you know the, all the youth team are we're up at the old sort of PGL at Lidington and he's got the youth team kind of lined up at the sort of far far trees and seeing he's got the longest drive with the, with the two new loan signings and uh, it's just how how Swindon was in those days it was just comical but but very but very good fun at the same time and that you know the relationship with the manager at the time as a fan you you, you kind of come from the outside and Andy mm. King's very abrasive and he was like that as a as a manager and at, at the time it, it was quite a sort of fractious relationship I was well it wasn't really a relationship it was a one way torrent of you know pretty pretty firm firm in his ways and but it was a you know, if you could deal with Andy King, you could deal with anyone as a manager, probably Bardacanio. But uh, actually, I had a lot of respect for him. You know, certainly sort of towards the latter days, and having some some really good conversations with him when I when I sort of saw him after he left Swindon, and he was very hard on me to to start with. But actually, it was the kind of best start I could have had. The press has been a complex thing, as you said. It's generally good, especially with the BBC. Just don't mention Bruno FM. God, <laughs> let's mention Bruno FM uh, because <laughs> bizarre, really bizarre, absolutely crazy, wasn't it? Bizarre North. Hampton away was I think the first game I think it must have been about 07, 08 and I just remember those conversations during the summer and it was just the most ridiculous thing to do and you, you're kind of saying I think Bob Holt was involved at the time and and you know best of intentions and all that sort of stuff but I remember you know silly things like Darius Henderson was going to sign and I remember being I think in a taxi with Bob Bob Holt and just Bob's you know they were so desperate to get good news out at the time because there was just so much you're getting so much for hammering from a lot of angles and I think the Darius Henderson deal was pretty much done, but a couple of bits still to do. And Bob just, you know, just announced it, announced it. I was like, no, look, just get it all signed, sealed, delivered. Then, you know, if it takes another day, so be it. But no, 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 just push it out there. And of course, then the deal got hijacked and and things happened. But it was just a very, 
yeah, just a, a, a crazy time. And as you say, the whole Brunel FM thing as well was it, it just didn't sort of sit right with a lot of people. Um, and the coverage I, I remember being at at Sixfields for that. I think it was Sixfields the first game, and you know the guys who were commentating from uh, Brunel FM just turned up with about twenty minutes before kickoff with a with a McDonald's and sort of just bowled into the press box. And you're like, you know, you, we were so lucky with with the quality of the BBC coverage, and he just thought this isn't this isn't going to work. There were media bans as well elsewhere. I think the um, in your early days, the Western Daily Press, Daily Press, yeah. yeah, they they were banned. What's it like as a press officer, sort of dealing with publications when they are banned? You you try and keep in touch, as to say, you know, great in hindsight, and I was, you know, you, you do get a lot more experience as, as you go on, but you just try and keep people informed as best you can. But obviously, they'd expect a press officer to be informed. Swindon being Swindon, a lot of the time you were you weren't informed. Um, you know, these decisions were kind of made above your head and at, at board level. And if you remember at the time, the Mike Demandez involvement um, at, at the time as well, we were, uh, the match day programme was produced and designed in Newbury with Dunwoody Sports. So because of every Thursday, I'm off down the M4 signing off the programme. And meanwhile, something that something else is probably kicking off off of Junction 15. So um, and a, a lot of those decisions were made outside the club as well, say with, with the Seton Wills, with the Mike Demandes, um, all of that sort of stuff, and James Wills. And there was just a whole myriad of people involved. And it wasn't a very kind of simple structure at that time, which was even more complex to get your head around. You're the face of the of the club during all of that, I imagine. So it must be a pretty stressful sort of role to have when you're not sure what's going on and they're sort of taught asking you those sort of questions because the media is quite a, is quite a uh, clicky in the sense that they, they there's a support network, isn't it? If mm. What we find, especially now, if in recent times when the advertiser were banned, the nationals, or at least journalists from the nationals, would say how ridiculous this is and then suddenly Swindon are all over the country as this as this club that bans its press um so it must have been tough for you in during those sort of times yeah and there was you know there's so much other so much other things on on your plate as well I mean you kind of press officer your program editor you're, you're trying to get five stories on the website you know when the videos came in you're editing the videos um you know the player liaison officer wasn't a role then but you know player looking around a house kind of things past your desk and there's all sorts of stuff happening with other staff in the office just trying to you know a very thin on the ground staff trying to support um a sort of club of of that nature but as i say it was it was trying to deal at board level um made a lot easier when you had more of a structure as we'll come on later with nick watkins andrew fitton and and you did have someone such as nick and andrew really um aware and really keen to talk to the press and just actually give a give an answer and give a give a sort of uh, you know just fill the void really and that was always my thing at least just give a response or at least um, have a conversation on or off the record and just kind of fill that void rather than just in the early days we were just told look don't speak to them or ban them or whatever else it was just very abrasive um, and not you know, for a club of Swindon size, it's not not something that, that works for anyone. Swindon have a loyal following of media, the same four, five, six people you would get on a weekly basis. What was it like when the Nationals turned up? What's their attitude towards smaller clubs like? I think they, they quite appreciated the access they had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we, we didn't get a lot of Nationals, so they, they were used to going to bigger clubs and being told, no, we can't do this. And we'd always try and be as flexible as we could to you know to try and accommodate things and i think in the early days we had i think it was the uh, the women's fa cup final um we had must have been about 2004 time um and again trying to put things like that on they were, they were quite appreciative of that access you could do and 
as you say, when we had a bigger cup tie or, or bigger stories with other journalists coming down, you'd always try and um, try and accommodate them. I mean, I remember Barry Davies coming down um, in my first probably couple of months, um, you know, for the for the game we won't we won't mention that was televised that didn't go so well. He was down and you know took him to the training ground, and I think John Champion came down a couple of times. I got to know pretty well. Just brilliant insight from these guys, and just a real you know someone like Barry Davies coming down, a real privilege to be dealing with and and trying to help them get get what they want and at whole, you know, ultimately better coverage for, for Swindon at the end of it. It's such a relief to learn that Barry Davis is a nice guy. Fan, oh, honestly, really, really, really good guy. <laughs> and just being being down at the uh, at the training ground with with those sorts of guys, and but of course you've you've then got the, the sort of kingy factor coming into it of of you just don't know quite what you're going to get. You know, if the pin's out the hand grenade and he comes over and you know, you, you, on the one hand you, you're trying to promote the, the sort of positive PR side of Swindon Town, and then. You know, you, uh, you, you're sort of waiting with bated breath. Perry on the ball. He's got Ward with him. Timing of the pass is crucial. A touch and shoot. Yes. You bet. You bet. 2-0 Swindon. Danny Ward. Let's talk about some of the events that happened during your time there. Within a year and months of one of your roles, town were made aware of the death of Jimmy Davis, which is a tragedy. But for you, you would have had to go into work mode. Um, I, you know, again, hugely tragic, really. I mean, I remember being on the morning of the game and things kind of filtering through. And then I think, again, Kingy came in the office at lunchtime and just got all the staff together. And we were kind of told what had happened and try and keep it away from the players. But, you know, the lads already knew and there was just things happening. It was just a real... And again, it, it just seemed a, a sort of Swindon Town type thing, you know, just another thing to kind of happen to the club and, and have to deal with. But I remember Jimmy's family coming down a couple of weeks later and I think we had a, I think it was Notts County and the family came down. And, and again, that's where the kind of family club kicks in really in, in what you're able to do and that, the kind of personal touches for the family. But as you say, it was a horrible day and um, a horrible kind of time to, to be around the club, really. But as you say, there was that positive angle of, of Swindon being that kind of family club, just being everyone kind of running around each other. Mm-hmm. To remain on sort of a uh, serious note, you also had to deal with the aftermath of the plane crash after the Hartlepool win away. Um, Mark Devlin, mm. along with Mike Sullivan, an investor, Bill Power, were involved in a plane crash. Luckily, everyone survived, but that must have been... Absolutely. I remember, well, I was at university at that time and I didn't have any internet because we just moved. And I remember just dashing off to uh, to the uh, university campus computers just to read what on earth was going on. But it was that was must have been a huge test for you. Again, just bizarre. I'd, I'd stayed up with some friends in North Allerton that evening on the Saturday. And uh, I think, as I say, the first game of that season with Dennis Wise and all those guys and... That that Sunday, I, I think I was just camped up with sort of coffee and a laptop, just trying to get internet. Because um, you say it wasn't the days where you could just do things on a phone. It was all kind of. It was just literally the whole day spent at the services, just trying to get you know speak to board, speak to those those involved where you could, and you know um, Sky Sports News. Just, it was just it was it, it was a national story, and yeah. and again a, a very unfortunate, but a very kind of quick learning curve on on how things are done and. And how to how to do things as best you can, but a lot of it was just kind of on the hoof and learning as you go. Again, I was still um, you know, what sort of twenty three, twenty four, so you know it was a pretty pretty wacky time. You're not wrong. A few years before that, something was born within the fan base, especially within things like the uh, the town end forum and maybe even the advert 
forum <laughs> as well, and that was Statement Fridays. It, it just seemed, you know, of course, you're, you're sat there reading the town end, and you're you're keeping in touch with everything that's going on, and you, you just all, you know, sometimes just chuckling to yourself, going, <laughs> "This is going to go all week, isn't it?" Um, <laughs> as you're kind of waiting for the white smoke from the boardroom, and you, you just, you know, Wednesday, let, let's get something out. We know what's happening. Come on, get it out. And then Thursday ticks past, and he goes, "Well." You almost might, might as well wait till Friday now, and of course, you know, you, you get handed a a few lines um, on a on a sort of Friday at sort of five to five, and professionally you're thinking, look, this is the worst time to be to be putting things out, and um, but it was just again in those days, it was just how how the club seemed to be seemed to operate, and again, there was a lot of people at at senior level kind of pitching in with different views and different ideas of how things should be done, so. Yeah, it was pretty. Uh, yeah, it, it just seemed to happen on a Friday, and I, I remember I think with with one of the one of the takeovers and the, the kind of James Wills era, just standing out on a on a freezing night, just reading to the trust some kind of statement that we just sort of cobbled together, just to try and again just to get something something out there rather than just leaving leaving kind of gaps. Um, but yeah, it was just just crazy times. So you're in your early twenties, your mid twenties, and you've had um, you've had administration. You've had the death of a former player, plane crashes, um, all sorts. Who's mentoring you during this? Honestly, I felt hugely lucky to be involved at, at that level of football at that age. Mm. I say John Champion was was someone who I got to know pretty well at, at the, the first Leeds game um, up at Ellen Road. I was I sat up on the gantry for that game. That kind of crazy. Night, and that's probably one of my favourite nights. Actually, watching Swindon as far as the performance goes. Yeah. Um, so he was always someone that I'd, I'd kind of go to and just try and try and get a, a steer and a, and a bit of advice from. Um, other press officers, of course, you know, some from those days are, are kind of still involved, um, and you, you could kind of bounce things off different people. And of course, you're seeing people at different games um, and just trying to get get advice. And I'd always try and you know where I could go go to other games because it was quite nice to be not kind of hosting a game if there was a Tuesday or Wednesday I could go off and get tickets to a game and just go and sit in someone's press room and sit at the back and kind of listen and just observe and see mm-hmm. see how things were done um, but of course you know some some are done well and you know some you're very envious you know if you're going to a top level game I remember going to a couple of Premier League games and just thinking this is just stratospheric as far as how people get treated, you know. We're, I think Marion in the tea room at Swindon sort of made the made the sandwiches herself because the budget didn't extend to anything beyond sort of digestives at the time. <laughs> what other events did we have at Swindon? Well, we had best holdings, didn't we? So um, oh. the takeover of I don't know who the main person in there, but Jim Little was appointed the uh, chairman designate. Rufus Brevet was there, and the Portuguese chap that name escapes me. What are your memories of that saga? Jose Vega. Jose Vega, of course. Yeah, oh my God. Um, Another just bonkers era for for the club, really. I think you know the club was in pretty dire financial trouble, and I think any any cent of someone kind of waving some money around was was sort of snapped up. You know, I think you or I could have gone in from the outside and and, and got something together and been taken seriously. They came in and they actually stripped out one of the. I think it was the chairman suite at the time, and they actually spent quite a lot of the club's money, or the club spent the money for them on redoing one of these suites. It was going to be an office, and you know it was all that was all sort of decked out at their bequest, really, and. I remember them coming in. I think we had a game Yeovil on Sky, and they were all sat there in the suits. And Jim Little, I think, came out and did things on the pitch, and it, it was just a bizarre situation. And Paul Starrett, who you know, it was very, very good, and I got on well with him. And he went into a board meeting one day, and they were looking at recruitment and players. And he told the guys, you know, because they were all sort of shuffling through these CVs, and I think Starrett had gone into the meeting and said, "Look, I've got a, 
I've got a sort of CV um, downstairs. This guy, he's, you know, he's played at two World Cups. He's got loads of caps for his country. And he's available and we can get him. And all three of them were just sort of hanging on every word. And then just Starrick said, it's me, and walked out. Um, <laughs> it was just, you know, their, their, their sort of involvement and take on football. I know Jim Little has obviously come over from the States. And it was just, a, you know, Franklin Anzite and, um, you know, Yvonne Arietta And the, these guys were just sort of, turning up for training and, and just being sort of forced into matches. And it, again, it was just another another bizarre sort of uh, bizarre chapter in the club's history, really. How close were they for, to taking over? Were they nowhere near? It, 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 it didn't seem like it was it, it was going to sort of have legs, if you like. Yeah. I mean, it was just, a you know, the whole Rufus Brevet thing as a kind of middleman and obviously Paul Sturrock being involved, very experienced football guy, very good, you know, very good for the club. And it just didn't, it just didn't seem like it, it was going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, with, with the way sort of Paul, Paul Sturrock was, you know, things could, could be, he sort of knew where he stood and he, and he wasn't going to sort of take, take any falls really. And one of the final major non-season events to take place during your time there was the Paolo Di Canio break-in. Obviously we'll talk about Di Canio era in more detail later, but What's your memory from that incident? Uh, I remember seeing the back page of the mail very late on Twitter. You know, Night Raider Paolo, I think it was, and he'd had all these photos done of the kind of success we'd had and images of him on the touchline on, on kind of board decked out in the office. And his office, you know, was where the old sort of boot room uh, sort of used to be down that kind of corridor. And I think, you know, there was no break in. He had his keys and it, it was just a another thing that was sort of blown up. And I, I, I think I did sort of, because I think they changed the that kind of addition to come through and uh, I think we ended up having an A3 of Night Raider Paolo up, up on the wall in the office at some point but again it was just a, just, just another bizarre episode Something of nothing though ultimately Pretty much pretty much yeah but, but, he, but he did sort of come in you know with his kind of with all the sort of henchmen there and his, his, his coaching staff went everywhere with him mm. and you know a lot of them they say they're, they're really good guys and they, again they got on with people in the office because again at a small club everyone kind of gets on and you know we used to play football I think it was a Thursday night and had the staff against the coaching staff and I don't think many of the coaching staff probably wanted to be there every Thursday in the freezing cold at <laughs> Dorkin or wherever it was um, but they, they just went everywhere with them one of the you may disagree with me but one of the perks of the job are pre-season tours is it busy um i'd always try and get away at the end of well the season would finish kind of early may and you you'd try and have a week off and that was probably the only week off you had mm-hmm. um i think seven out of the 11 years i was there kind of working as a one-man band so a holiday was never actually a holiday you were working updating websites and doing signings and stories and stuff from yeah. wherever you were and the work rate I had to put into that role was just ridiculous. I think having having finished that now, I'm kind of I look back and think, you know, it was six and a half days a week of work for eleven years. You you never switched off, um, so you'd so you'd end up having a, a week a week off as as off as could be, um, and then pre-season and plans and kits and everything else would would just kind of kick in. But say the you know the pre-season tours you had. I mean, I remember going to Austria. We had a, a week over there, and I think I must have been kind of about oh seven oh eight and getting hauled in front of the chief exec at the time and you know the the finance manager was sat there and he kind of going well, what's this about and thinking you're in in at the deep end and uh it turns out the laptop that i'd had we had we had one of the old vodafone um vodafone cards for the internet again in fairly early days of being able to of mobile internet and uh you know the, the bill was nearly a thousand pounds 
because um, Sturrock and Martin Starnes have been sat there looking at players um, throughout the evening, or you know, it was <laughs> of course all all fell on fell on my head, but thank, thankfully I didn't have to pay it. Andy King era is pretty much all going down south to Devon where you play Biddeford three years in a row. One of the things that I've been talking to with some of the um, other guys that have been on was the divide of Andy King and we will go Mm. through the managers later but there was the guys that went to play golf and cards and then there was I think you were named as one of the guys that would be on the beach with Dick Mackey and Steph McLaranzi and Roy Fallon playing the guitar and things like that. What were your memories of the Andy King pre-seasons in Devon? Uh, I remember one of the one of the guys deciding that it was a good idea to turn a room upside down. I, thought, I think it may have been his. They thought that was a good idea and quickly decided actually this isn't going to this isn't going to go down well. So trying to trying to quickly put it all back together before he before he came back one night. But you know you, you've kind of got a squad a, a little bit thrown together and it was the golfers and the non-golfer. I, I wasn't obviously going to be part of that circle anyway. Mm-hmm. But uh, I say I just remember sat on the beach and Rory and say Roger Jones and I we just went off to a kind of local shop, got some disposable barbecues and I think Rory got a sort of blow up boat and we just sort of messing around killing time on a on a beach in in sort of windswept Devon for the day. Yeah, those those trips it was all on a budget. There was no you know, there was no kind of cash to be going around staying at the kind of the nicer places and it was just about sort of team bonding and, you know, the lads were in the back of a minibus all kind of squashed in with kit and everything and Again, Roger Jones. Um, if you could ever get him for a uh, for a Loath of Strangers podcast, would be fantastic because he's just got the, the stories he'd have from from those days and, and and throughout Swindon. But again, very small kind of backroom staff, and you're trying to sort of cover cover games as, as best you can from uh, from within that role. But um, as time went on, you'd, you'd get media travelling with you. Obviously, during the Decanio days, we had I think both the BBC and the Advert came out and. Um, I think 442 even came to to Austria. I think Ben Welch actually did a did a feature and, and came on for the last sort of three minutes of a game hmm. um, with 442, which was actually a really really enjoyable partnership to have. How wise it was the Copper Ibiza champions of, but was it a, oh, was it a good trip? What a trip! Yeah. What a trip! Team bonding, brilliant. Um, I remember. I think we we were walking back down the beach at about seven o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Um, and just went on straight to the bus. We had one night at, at the end where everyone could just go and let your hair down. And I remember the first night we got there, I think Dennis Wise got all the players together on the steps of the hotel and said, look, you know, here we are. We're not far from San Antonio, but here are the rules. Here's your curfew. Um, you know, no one's no one's sort of going out. And you, you, you just got to kind of do your stuff and do your training. We were training sort of three times a day. Well, I wasn't, obviously. Mm. They were sort of training three times a day and then sort of back to the hotel in the evening after a, a quick wander. But I think with Dennis's contacts, he was, you know, he was probably out of the hotel a few of those evenings, let's say. Um, but uh, I think Gus Poyer's one and only appearance in the Swindon shirt. I think he came on um, in one of those games. But as I say, it was just a, a bizarre place to go for for pre-season but as I say team bonding on that last night you know certainly did the trick there must have been someone at the club stressing out on that yeah but I say it was great we had some fans out there and you know people had purchased sort of packages to come and support the team and but all the games were on an astro I think so the surface was surface was uh, was pretty terrible but I think you know we had some random trialists again I think Rodrigo Turner came, yeah. <laughs> came out and played who, who sort of impressed actually but 
is again, it, you just get to know the guys really well when you're out in that sort of environment. And just, uh, I mean, certainly Dennis Wise got the team fit, that's for sure. Rodrigo Turnes is a funny one because I remember somebody claiming to be his friend contacting me on on MSN Messenger, mm. and I've no idea. Mm. Maybe I said, I, you know, my profile it said I was a Swindon fan or whatever, but he contacted and started saying, "Oh, I'm Rodrigo Turnes' friend," and I was like, "All right." I imagine work permit would have been the issue for him. Yeah, we pre-season we we just turn up. I mean, I, I think with David Byrne and it was Morris Malpass was there. We were, we were at Austria. And we we landed at the airport and we we kind of meet the bus and I think David Moyes' brother was the was the kind of uh, the sort of tour agent out there and we were sat for about nearly two hours waiting for this um, quasi duro I think it was. <laughs> was a, a trialist and you're kind of sat there and all the lads are on the bus just going, what are we doing? Kind of whoever the trialist is, we've been sat here for like two hours. Let's just get off. But you're kind of just waiting for a, a trialist who, of course, on a CV is a, a sort of great white hope. Mm. Um, but, you know, they, they don't turn out to be as, as, fo- as football is, but um, it's just some, some weird situations you get kind of involved in with, with pre-season tours. There been any trialists that, you, that have blown you away? Like this, we've got to sign this guy that maybe we didn't. Um, there was the guy, uh, so Paul Starrett organised a game. We had uh, a summer of just being peppered with CVs. And again, I think Starrett was probably a bit fed up and he just he, he just burst in the office one day with a, a huge pile of CVs. He goes, come on, son, sort these out. And I'm like, am I on the coaching staff? No. Do I really know what I'm doing with players? Probably not. Um, but he said, look, he said, I don't care. Just sort them out into 2-11s. We'll have, we'll have a game for the fans. And uh, so you're kind of shuffling through and you... You kind of randomly pick out kind of thirty you think have either played a bit, and uh, so we end up having this game. I think it was on a Sunday as part of an open day, and Sterrett kind of okayed the the CVs, the end, and the agents, and everything else. And this guy, I think it was a Belgian player, turned up and he scored two or three, and you know looked okay. But of course, he then rolls up as one of these football fakes um, that that you see, you know, sort of ten years later, and you go, oh, that's the guy. Um, and I think we did some kind of text vote on the day as who we should sign, and he was this guy was streets ahead. Um, but then his agents just asking for kind of stupid money to to get him in. But only, again, only Swindon Town would, would be the club where you're kind of voting to sign a player by text. But it, it was very much a, a sort of steric gimmick, just was a bit of a bit of fun. Now Ferry to the byline, Devita. They have turned it around. Simon Ferry to the byline and he had the presence of mind to pick out Rafael De Vita. The tours of Austria brought up some bloody great fixtures, didn't they? I mean, Stauer Bucharest and Fenerbahce. Fenerbahce. Unbelievable. Um, I remember the Fenerbahce game. I think the post-match uh, press, if you call it a press conference, you know, you stood on the side of a a sort of non-league Austrian side pitch with probably 30 journalists around Morris Malpass and you're thinking, you know, this is it's just a huge interest. Um, and then, you know, you know what they're waiting for. They're, they're literally just, you know, the microphones are facing um, facing Morris Malpass and all, all, their, all their eyes are looking the other way and <laughs> Lewis Aragonis rolls out and literally there's left, there's sort of me and one other journalist, I think Swindon Webber out there, driven out there. And uh, so, you know, you're kind of left with three and the other sort of 27 just clear off and go and, Go and speak to Aragonis, but um, what a, again, you know, to be able to play those sorts of side again, you know, Coxie's goal mm. is just an incredible. I think we played in training kit. It's just, you know, again, another thing that didn't happen. <laughs> I remember again uh, another one. Uh, Paul Gascoigne's CV came across Kingy's desk, I think, 
um, must have been about 2003. And wow. He just ha- he just happened to tell the press one day, so oh, you know, could have could have got Gascoigne in for the game. And you're kind of going, well, why didn't you? Just just for this game, I think we had Wolves at home, and he was he was being sort of offered to various clubs to to come in at that time. But uh, yeah, just pre pre season, just in, enjoyable because again, as a fan, you're getting to see these games and. You know, Thomas Tosevi, you know, looks like a world beater. He scores two against Forest in <laughs> in the preseason. I think um, I think the Forest manager was was kind of chasing him down the car park, trying to sign him actually um, after after the game. But you know, and then he sort of <laughs> he signs and does okay, but doesn't really pull up too many trees. But again, in in preseason, players can look you know um, can, can look out, outstanding, but others not, should we say? The funniest thing about it: one, yes, we were in our training gear and it looked proper amateur, but it's also televised by Fenerbahce TV, yep. isn't it? And yep. Fenerbahce don't take a couple of fans with them. They take... The whole bank. Oh, like a whole bank of fans. Absolutely and loads. And I think Roberto Carlos played. Yeah, Roberto Carlos, Diego Lugano, Alex, who went on to play for Chelsea, I think, and um, Keshman, who definitely is ex-Chelsea yeah, yeah. Um, played as well, and a host of other players, but absolutely insane and I remember like someone posting the link on the town end and bank of Fenerbahce fans and then Simon Cox oh it's just a hell of a finish unbelievable goal but he, he could do that he could just pull out goals from anywhere and, you know it was him and as I say just having that potency within the side as we had with Charlie and Billy Painter and things like that it was you just knew there, there was something special at that, at that time with, with the likes of Simon Cox around but again you know him even him signing I think he signed Late on a August transfer deadline, in a in the midst, I think it was the Jose Vega, um, yeah. that kind of era, oh seven oh eight. Cox, and, Painter, and McGovern, wasn't it? Yeah, so Billy, Billy Painter, um, that, that's another funny one. He got all the negotiations were, were kind of going on a bit late into the night, and and he got uh, and he got sent away by his agent. Um, his agent said, "Look, you know, go and have go and have some dinner or, or whatever, and just sort of come back." come back in a couple of hours and we'll get the deal done and obviously Billy not knowing his way around Swindon he thought well he just went out to the county ground car park and he was he was there for about two hours and of course you're out in the county ground car park at <laughs> half ten at night and uh, you're not getting the knock on the window that you wanted but it was very amusing at the time. We went from Austria and down to Italy which looked like a lovely little experience. Oh, not for the players. No. No. Um, players got beasted every day. Um, just Again, double treble sessions. Uh, they weren't, you know, the food was the same. It was, it was kind of chicken and just the same old, old stuff regurgitated. So, I'd actually, uh, we we borrowed a, uh, I think it was a Chrysler Voyager from a local dealership, and I did have a bit of thing about all the all the costs that we were paying for kit because he'd always turn up for a pre-season, and you've got half the medical department, all the you know, all the bags and the physio and all the stuff. So I said, look, let's just take it out, save the cost of all this, and I'll, I'll drive over one to guarantee I go on the trip. Um, but also you can kind of take I literally cleared my desk of you know that we didn't have a laptop I just took my sort of PC and everything and just packed it all into a into boxes and chucked that chucked that in but I made the mistake of uh, mentioning to Claudio Donatelli that I was you know we got wind that I was taking his van over and in the end he literally took the county ground gym apart and put it in the back of the van um, and you're kind of just crawling to Austria with as I say, just this huge amount of weight in the back. Um, had its advantages when we got to Austria, uh, sorry, when we got to Italy, 
um, you know, players weren't allowed out as much and they were just desperate for sort of just getting, you know, a couple of kind of cans of Coke and crisps and all the normal stuff. So you're kind of driving it around the back of the hotel and, you know, a couple of people just diving in the back through the kind of tradesman's entrance um, just to kind of nip off to the shop and just get some sort of normal, normal food at the time. Just, again, just bizarre. But again, you have a couple of games out there and you're just watching all this stuff going on and players turning up. And I think they had a the kit man, sorry, not the kit man, one of the physio or assistant kit man had just changed. And this this guy turned up on the first day um, and he wasn't, you know, he didn't look like a footballer and he was pretty, uh, you know, he wasn't in the best of shape, shall we say. And I think he lasted half a day before he, before he was changed. Um, it was just, uh, yeah, just, just just the way things happened. I think that's a, is that longer than Leon Knight lasted around that time? Oh, so uh, Leon Knight turned up for training in the morning, and again, I remember Paolo was running with him at the end of the session, and they were literally doing laps and laps and laps, and, and Tagania was doing all the running with him, um, and just sort of drag, you know, it was literally dragging him around. He wasn't probably in in the shape he should have been, but and then he came back to the club at, at the kind of lunchtime and. Um, you know, a few things were said and he, he just didn't kind of, he wasn't going to be staying at Swindon and then again he was sort of shipped off and ne- next out the door. Do you remember if Matarazzi's brother was any good? No, um, I don't. When I, there was just, obviously the, the Italians were there and you know, you've got quite a quite a few coming and going and then the, I mean the Alberto Camazzi one was, was, a, was a funny one, just trying to get him signed. I think they'd, they'd put him up at, uh, I think they put him up at Stoke Park Mm. Um, along the M4, of course, that was a, a fair representation of Swindon. <clears throat> um, so he was, him and his family were up at Stoke Park at Windsor. You know, this is what the area is like, and showing him round, and <laughs> and they just got so they got him a car to take him from Stoke Park to the training ground um, to sort of convince him to sign. And you're thinking, this is just bonkers. You know, he's been he's been put up here. He's he's training there. Eventually, signs. Um, and of course, then his family sort of come to Swindon, and it's not quite the kind of centre of Windsor that they've been that they've been shown around. But uh, yeah, some some of the effort they they went to get some of the players in. But as I say, players were were going as, as quickly as they were arriving at that time. go through season one season two season three season four sure. because so much happens um it's up and down up and down as in true swindon style the the highlights of course there were the playoff campaigns so brighton the charlton moving on to millwall and the brentford one uh, we had our final as i mentioned we had a johnson's paid trophy final we had a lovely five nil against port vale um where we won the league to championship and lots in between what are the highlights for you brighton was incredible that brighton semi was you know you're you're on the verge of of something really really good and you just think that that's going to be it could potentially be take off and of course doesn't happen um not a highlight but that period of you know the, the home game i think on the sunday and having the cameras in and just that kind of whole sense of anticipation 2010 again was a kind of similar you know you get to the playoff final and you're on a personal point of view it was just with a, a kind of fan hat on as well as professionally you're thinking just get to the championship and having you know I'd had a few things you, you could have you know a couple of other jobs come up at other clubs and you think oh is it the right time to move or whatever but you, I just wanted to stay and get Swindon or just kind of work in the championship with Swindon Town and um, so it was a massive blow not to 
to do that at that time and obviously things happened after with with the kind of side coming apart but when Wembley was was a definite highlight getting there and as a, a Swindon fan and, and an employee really 06 07 some of the football we you know it was just high scoring games and the way with Sturrock and finishing promotion off was good and again really good kind of team spirit around those days yeah just some some good times overall and as you say the, the promotion and obviously the Decanio one um, you know getting out from League 2 but really with the side and the finances that, that were spent getting out of League 2 was you know you should have should have got out of League 2 and um, the real disappointment was, of course, not then going on to the championship again in, in that time. Listeners may disagree with me, but I think the missed opportunities out of all of the playoff endeavours that we had were, was the Brighton season and the Brentford season as well. I think yeah. I think we would have beat Bristol City uh, in Cardiff, especially if they played like they did against Brighton that day. Such a good side, yeah. such a good side. And Andy King as a talent spotter was incredible. You know, he'd yeah. get the players, some of the players we had in, you know, the Brian Howards and what he went on to do and you had a again there was a really good team spirit really good group of players you know a, a mix of finishers a mix of you know really hardy experienced pros that, that could kind of handle themselves and as you say not to not to go up that season we there was a real sense of you know had we as they got to the final it would have um you know been an incredible occasion i think out the millennium at, at the time and i think we'd have gone on and gone and done some some good things but i say his, that's uh, that's history and the Brentford one, it would, been, it would have been Yeovil in the final. Now, Yeovil, everyone will go, well, we would have beat Yeovil. Yeovil were good, and we've slipped up against Yeovil many times during your time yeah. um, in, in employment there. But again, I think I just think Millwall and Preston were better sides. We, Millwall were there for the taking, the bobble, of course, um, yeah. with Charlie. Um, but I, I, I went to Preston maybe not expecting to be humble but obviously that's not your time at the club but as a fan I, I expected us to lose at Preston Millwall as well but it was just a shame that yeah Millwall was a again you know with that kind of time and you you, you think with the side we had it was going to go places and you know the white kit as we said as well publicized and you know why do we play in that color and mm. did it affect things and I think subliminally there is something that you know that's when and way, but I remember the I think the Millwall game at the end of the season. You went there and yeah. played well, and Danny Ward and Simon Ferrier, it's just some really good talent in that in that side and real entertainment. And again, that that's what people want to go to games and be entertained. And, and that season, you were just going with, you know, as I say, Stephen Darby, and it's just a really good mix of of players put together. And I say, getting past that kind of semi final and getting to the final, and again, it was just a. A massive disappointment. Um, the Brentford game a couple of years later was actually my last game working for the club. Um, so again, you, you're kind of thinking, you know, really wishing we, we could have just gone out on a, on a high, really. It would have been so much different, I think, if we would have went up that year. The Charlton game, the penalty shootout that I'll never forget because I think almost everybody that stepped up, I thought they'd missed it. Unbelievable. Maybe Charlie, I would have thought, scored, but McGovern scuffs his. When, bless him, when, um, when a Manquo steps up, I'm like, well, what on earth is he doing taking a penalty? He's definitely missed. And I think he must have heard me because the roar he gave to the, yeah. uh, to the Valley that, that evening was almost a reaction to me at home going, what on earth is he doing taking a penalty? Yeah. But it was, you, it was a nice You one. talk about players, you know, players' pressure and stepping up and all this stuff as a professional footballer. But again, in front of the cameras, in front of that pressure and players stepping up then and that's probably what you look at later on with Miles Story taking a penalty mm. a few years later 
winding back to the Charlton game, you had players in that side, you know, I think, as I say, Stephen Darby tucking one away. Of course. It just, the atmosphere of that game was just brilliant. And again, you know, with Danny Wilson, the experience there as a manager kind of getting getting through that game. And I remember after the game, um, it's funny, Joe Butler talking the other day about, you know, the after the Wembley game, they all went back to the Goddards. And that's exactly where we went back, <laughs> went back to after the Charlton game. Um, and I think, uh, I think after the game, Danny had said, look, you know, the guys can have a couple of days off. And I remember the next day seeing, I think it was uh, JP and Sean and a couple of the guys were in, in Marbella. I think the next morning they'd sort of just got on, got a sort of flight, the first flight from Bristol the next morning, still in their club suits. Um, <laughs> just bizarre. But again, they're all kind of going towards that that time of just trying to get up to the championship. And it was always just kind of jumping and not quite making it. I asked Simon Ferry about the uh, the white kit and he wasn't aware of any uh, of any superstition. He was like, well, I don't know. I didn't make that decision. Who Do you know who made the call to wear white? I think it would have been a sponsorship thing. Yeah. Um, in honesty, I think EA were on the away kit, and I think obviously with four four two, it had so much press um, for the uh, you know for the home kit, and there was a we were kind of toing and throwing that that week at, at board level that I wasn't involved in, but mm. um, I, I know it was very much at, at that level, and it was an interesting deal for sponsorship. It wasn't huge financial gain for the club, but the amount we got out of it, and probably the amount fans got from it, from having you know the yeah. EA games and the 442 subscriptions and with the program there was some there were some real tangible benefits to that i think it was probably an unfortunate um sort of necessity if you like of of kind of balancing out that that need from a from a commercial point of view but i think the amount of good it did do over the course of of those sort of seasons to have ea sports and 442 you know it, it was national level stuff it wasn't God, we say, you know, the kind of Kingswoods and things like that. Mm. It was a real, a real step in the right direction. Some of the articles that came from that sponsorship back then were absolutely incredible. At, um, it was, you know, the behind the scenes of the, of the tour was brilliant. Yeah. You just wouldn't, you wouldn't get that kind of access. And for us as a club was great. And I know Ben, who came along on the tour, was, you know, getting kind of run ragged and <laughs> it was pretty, mm. pretty entertaining stuff. Just really good. And, you know, you kind of think, and again, having been involved in non-league football, I can always see the two sides. And, yeah. Sometimes you just think, well, why don't we try this? And can we do this? And you try and push a few boundaries, and, and that, that was one of the really good good things that, that was done. I say it wasn't kind of my wasn't my doing, but um, it was. There was some really really cool stuff we did get done in those days. Port Vale. One of the, my lasting memories of that is because everyone's riding the, the 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 wave of happiness, and I just remember on social media, all of you guys, all the back office. Um, staff with the trophy and things like that. That must have been a very rewarding time for you and maybe the unsung heroes behind the scenes. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't. I mean, there was still a lot going on behind the scenes, you know, Mehdi Karouche and Etienne and a few of the guys um, with the way the club was with management of those at that time. There was a couple of players that weren't uh, weren't allowed in Vodicomas, um to be a part of that day. And I think they'd organised a training session um at the time of the kind of presentation and things like that. And there was some pretty crude stuff that went on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a few of the lads were just, you know, Mehdi and Etienne were just kind of tucked away in the, tucked away in one of the kind of dressing rooms. And you're kind of trying to sort all that out whilst, you know, probably 50 feet away, there's a kind of a really joyous occasion for, for the fans and everything else, but there's always stuff bubbling under the surface of, <laughs> of happening. But, uh, but yes, in answer to your question, a, a really good day. And, you know, a kind of great finish to to, to what was a, a good season, but there's, there was just so much stuff that season, just always stuff bubbling under and things happening, and 
um, you're forever just trying to kind of fight different different battles and, and represent all sorts of bodies, really. I can't let that go, I'm afraid, Chris. So we had Mehdi and Etienne. They were on the pitch. Yeah. They were on the yeah. pitch in the celebrations, track suited up. I don't remember seeing um, Chiboki on there. I was I was surprised with some of the medals. Lando Gobolando, you know, yeah. good player, but he got ten. He only made ten appearances. He got a medal, and maybe a couple of the others didn't. Um, yeah, so there was. So though, I think a couple of the guys, you know, there was various fallings out and various things. It was it was quite an abrasive mm-hmm. kind of culture, as is pretty well publicised. And I think those guys, you know, apparently weren't going to be allowed out to to kind of join in the celebrations, and so they were kind of supposed to be in a training session and at that time, and it was all just you know pretty. Um, pretty torrid really and pretty pretty harsh um but as i said i, I think uh derek johnson who was the the program designer because one of the best things we did was actually bring the design of the program in house rather than going out of house so we had some really good stuff design wise coming out but um i think derek was actually instructed to photoshop out a couple of the players from the from the sort of presentation photo wow. at the end um and it was all that sort of detail and that sort of obsession really that was you know you, you would sort of raise your eyebrows out and go kind of really um, but it was just that kind of style of management. The other side of it was, as I say, we'll, we'll probably come on later, on, on to you later. Mm-hmm. Okay. Rivalries. So during your time, we don't. There's no Reading. Uh, uh, I don't think during your nope. time working no, so Reading, no, no. We'll, we'll disregard. So we don't beat Oxford during your time um, uh, working with Swindon, but we beat Bristol City plenty of times, um, and we have Bristol Rovers as well. From your side of things, working as a media officer, what is the build-up to those games like? I mean, a couple of these are televised. We're definitely televised against Oxford. We're definitely televised against Bristol City a couple of times. What's is it a difference in build-up? What was your relationship like with your counterparts? Yeah, really good, really, really good. It was all kind of friendly banter, really, with, with the other guys at the other clubs, and they were big kind of help to me again, kind of starting the job and coming through and. Those, I think, certainly, I think one or two of that out of those sort of four are, are kind of still there. And you, I remember the Bristol City game, I think it was a Friday night, about 2005. Yeah, it was, yeah. Neil McDermott scored. Yes, indeed. I was in uh, I was in Boston, Massachusetts for that one. Uh, and I, watched it. I think Rory Fallon pulled out, I think it was a paintballing celebration. Uh, yeah, and um, Sky did the Freebird uh, conclusion uh, as well, lovely stuff. Yeah, it was, you know, and just kind of any, any win against, you know, as they say, the, the kind of Bristols and the Oxford, you just got to gotta love it and it was you know you get good crowds and some of the crowds early on you're kind of thinking of four or five thousands but then you get a derby in and everything just picks up and and gets a lift and so much more interest and it's that sort of stuff that you think look if you get to the championship this is going to be a kind of an every week not a kind of a twice a season type thing but um generally yeah we we get on well with with the guys behind the scenes at the other clubs everyone's kind of trying to do the similar thing with with job wise but there was always something special about the build-up to those games for sure What's the relationship like between the clubs on from on a transfer level? Because we do deals with I think well we we talk we talked we send Carouche to Oxford. Um yeah. 
our good friend Matt Hayward goes to uh, goes to Bristol City, as does Grant Smith. Um, I don't think any Bristol Rovers movement during that time. But is is the negotiations, or from your side of thing, is it trickier? Um, from my side, not really, because you you know the guys pretty well, and you know it's all fairly cordial and a bit. Um, you know, depending on what player it was, <laughs> you could have a bit of fun with it. But um, obviously, when you when you've got a better player going, you, you kind of wish them well, and and they and they kind of moved on. But a lot of those, you know, you mentioned the sort of Matt Hayward and Grant Smith and things like that. They kind of done through through circumstance really and mm. finance and things like that. And you know, shame to see some of the guys move on. But um, yeah, just some you know. Then you got the sort of Tommy Mooney one and, and things like that. And there, there are some more difficult players that go and go and sort of come in but you again your players kind of come in do a job and after a few games it's it's sort of moved on to an extent okay let's talk about the owners then so in your time you you start under Sassi and Wills and Willie Carson as the chairman yes. um <laughs> Willie Carson quite just yeah it's it just again it just sums up Swindon doesn't it you just got you know, a lovely guy. Yeah. I don't think, you know, football wasn't sort of top of his agenda, but he'd just sort of come into the club and he'd always be around the training room and he'd just hear the laugh kind of giggling away in the background and um, always sort of coming out of the training room and just, you know, very much just in, just having a good time, I think, and kind of come in as a bit of a figurehead. Um, so Seaton Wills, absolutely lovely guy. Mm. Um, nothing but respect for him. And I think the way he was... Uh, kind of guided if if you like by others I think was quite difficult but you know very much had the club at heart and and again it was just uh, that kind of era and times and you know then you've got the William Patey one later with just being drafted in and just again just only at Swindon this sort of stuff Mm -hmm. seems to happen but um, say several sets of owners and you know we'll come on to the Jeb McCrory's and things like that later Mm -hmm. but I think having the, the sort of takeover probably in owners of the Andrew Fitton and Nick Watkins and Jeremy Ray that that was a real time where you there was a really proper sort of business structure put in probably for the first time um, that I was there in terms of resource behind the scenes and actually having a real ambition to to run the club differently Willie Carson my when I, at the time when he was appointed I, I assumed his role was to try and get investment from from the racing industry yeah uh, I'm sure there was attempts to do that but I mean the players loved it because you know every time the Cheltenham Festival came around there was just <laughs> a, a sort of marquee and tickets and it was of course all the all the players were there and you're kind of still back in the office going oh it should be should be at Cheltenham but uh, no there, there was there was plenty of bad tips given out um, <laughs> but uh, no again just a great from you know from a club point of view to have to an extent someone like that involved as a, as a sort of well-known face but when you get down to the kind of nitty gritty it was just quite quite difficult again it's a difficult time with the sort of Bob Holt era and Sandy Gray and all, all those um, sorts of figures involved and at the time you, again with age and experience you, you kind of look back and think what a what a time that was to be trying to navigate your way at a, at a club with finances were just so difficult mm-hmm. at, at the time that you know you, you look back at the Jimmy Quinn area of sort of players taking the kit home and washing it and all that sort of stuff and the kind of I think the 98-99 season where all that stuff was going on and I think there was um, some of the deals that they were having to try and do with to get players in and it was just very difficult at the club to try and get things done and to try and sign players you were looking at contacts and I remember the Andy King was on the well, we were all sat in the office and the phone goes and one of, one of the girls because 
the whole office is all, all together at that point. There just weren't enough staff to have more than one office. And <laughs> you had the accounts department, and one of the one of the girls in the office shouting, "You've got Alec on the phone!" Um, and there's this call bouncing around the office, and well, who's Alec? Alec? And, you know, Kingy comes charging in, and he got Sir Alex Ferguson sort of being bounced around from about four different phones. You know, just just trying to get get players in and uh, and try and try and get things done. But uh, yeah, just just crazy. Unbelievable. The Andrew Fitton Consortium, I think, as it was originally yep. um, called, as you've already mentioned, and I'm sure you elaborate on now, a much more, shall we say, professional endeavour. It must have been reassuring. I mean, we go down during it still because typical Swindon fashion. We still get yeah. good owners and end up getting relegated. Yep. A great time. It was, but I think the, the initial, <coughs> I think, excuse me, um, Nick's background was very much in top level management and recruitment and I think when they were looking for a manager, um, when Morris Malpass was appointed, I think Nick and Nick's stated this publicly before that he, he said to Andrew, look, you know, he was going to okay and they were going to have a real professional approach to who was who was going to be appointed as manager. And I, th- I know, you know, Gary Speed was was one of the ones that that we sort of got in front of them and was interviewed and things like that. And, and then and Andrew, I think, just appointed Morris Malpass out, out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick didn't have awareness of it, I don't think. And again, he, he sort of said that before, but um, Morris was appointed and sort of came in, I think it was probably about 10, 11 months of sort of him there. And again, a, a difficult time sort of on and off the pitch, but sorry, sort of off the pitch, you know, things were being run very well, but then you go to the, the way of performance and the Histons and, and things like that. It just never really clicked from from his point of view. And of course, David Byrne always uh, there and taking over as manager and those kind of three quarter length, um, <laughs> you know, appearing on the touchline every now and then with sort of the windmill windmill arms and and, and the, the ranting and raving going on. But uh, and then again, sort of things moved on. Then of course, when when Danny Wilson came in, I, I had a lot of sympathy for Morris Malpass purely because. I didn't like the reaction from fans when he was appointed because they were like, who? And yeah. when I was a kid, absolutely football mad. Yeah. I, had, I had a Morris Malpass poster on my wall because yeah. it was in like Match Magazine or whatever. So I was fully aware of what he had done at uh, Dundee United and things like that. And I, I kind of had a soft spot for him before he joined. And when he joined, I was like, okay, okay, that's Dower Scotsman. I can deal with that. And then obviously it didn't go well, but... Um, very happen. good, to, very good to deal with. You know, really nice guy, and you know there was no no issues there in in the club. And he, you know, he, he kind of tried his hardest to get things going. But I think there is a, and I think it's true of players as well. There is a bit of a north south divide, and I think the location of Swindon does have an impact to an extent. You know, you look at some of the managers we've had, and coming out of London, the location, and suddenly coming, you know, someone coming down from there. I think it it just there wasn't much of a, a kind of connection, and I think that never really got a foothold mm. with the fans and it was always a little bit distant it was a bit them and us um, we're trying to get things done yeah I think that would be the case we get trophy under the uh, under that era we, we do have a little bit of problems behind the scenes with Fitton leaving is that purely down to the relegation or were things going wrong behind the scenes at that stage yeah a little bit of a power struggle I think um, you know you've got some very heavy sort of hitters involved with Andrew Black and obviously Andrew and, and Nick kind of running things behind the scenes and um it was again we did have some very very good good years of the way the club was run but unfortunately you know things do happen and do you know like say with with jeremy kind of coming in and taking over as chairman and um you know he he came in and did a lot of good stuff as well but um it was just again it's just the swindon town way of you know you look at the cvas and the payments and everything else just there was just so many so much happening at 
at that kind of point in time and trying to get, you know, you're kind of fighting on one hand on the football front and then on the other side, the club's being run and there's the money coming in and the investment and it never really all kind of sits sits together. And the final era that you were there was for the Jed McCrory. When, when I get to the end of this podcast and we've still got plenty of stuff to talk about, yeah. I don't want to end on a negative. Sure. And I, I wonder, and I ask this question now, is this, does this, Spell the beginning of Chris Tanner at Swindon Town? Uh, beginning of the end. Yeah, I mean, the March time, I think they came in and, and you're doing this press conference with, I think, the four guys that came in and you're just kind of trying to present them as, you know, the, the guys that were involved. It was just pulled from four corners of <laughs> of Middle England, really. You, you're kind of looking, I think, you know, one of the guys that come in was sort of running a B&B in Lincoln. Yeah. And, you know, you, you're just you're looking at it going, is this really going to work but I say it was very kind of limited options going forward but um, they came in in the March and and then I think the May the season finished on the Saturday and we all got called into a meeting in the Legends on the Monday all, all staff and I say there's probably only about 25 staff at the time um, they were saying look we need to make five of you uh, kind of redundant um, it just didn't have the funds to be kind of taking the club forward of, of how things had been run um, and then again I, I kind of left that summer and I think there was a few others did move on at that point and I think by the October they'd all moved on um, from an ownership point of view so again it's just a, another uh, another unfortunate chapter really mm. I think maybe it's adulthood and things like that but I remember when that announcement was made and they sort of all lined out thinking oh boy especially yeah. after what we had experienced with Nick, Wat- Nick Watkins and and with Fitton and Black and uh, Jeremy Ray, you know, for all of the power struggle, there was at least, you know, a little bit of much-needed experience. Yeah, and, 100%. And when when they announced and they, they put the bio... You guys had to put the biographies, you know, their pen picks up and you're just like, yeah. oh, why did you have to mention that? That doesn't make yeah. me feel at yeah. all at ease. It was... It did feel... Like it was the end, really, of an yeah, end and even harder doing that with a fan hat on. You yeah. know, you, you're kind of um, again. You know, you talk about the player point of view and getting to know the players. And when when you come in at the start as an employee, you, you kind of know the players and things like that. Who you've been watching as a fan, but it's very different um, as as players come in. Mm. You've got to say sort of different relationships and stuff. But um, at that point, you, you do kind of think for a kind of future of the club and just how how things were going to be run and and again it just didn't really have that experience to kind of knit it together and perhaps didn't have and I know fans certainly didn't have confidence in in how things were were sort of being run and, and being presented and as that was a pretty unfortunate episode how does your role change with the emergence of things like twitter at the, around the you know the year, these years yeah, great in terms of being able to respond to things um I remember, you know, there was a tweet from, I think, Sky Sports News put out, you know, you know, we're going to appoint Swindon Town to appoint uh, Kevin McDonald tomorrow. And I could just, you could just reply to it again. We just have, <laughs> um, you know, and it was it was great to be able to have a voice and to actually kind of set the tone from from the club point of view. But that relies on having information, mm-hmm. which we did have at the time from, as you say, the from the, the sort of good owners, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just another thing. And thankfully, with the investment we had, we were able to have a few more staff and, um, you know, I know Tom. Tom then came in. Tom Atrevsky came in to sort of do the website, and and I did have a bit more help because you were doing kind of seven or eight roles under one guys, and you know it wasn't just home games; it was all the away games, the reserve games, and trying to get coverage of youth games. Mm. You know, I remember being at Ellen Road once, and you, I'm trying to type the match report. I've got a camera in my hand, you know, trying to take match photos. I've got a video camera on the floor, trying to take some 
some kind of highlights to put over an interview and you're trying to do the press conference after the game and it's just you're trying to tweet you're trying to put something on Facebook and you're just going this is just bonkers um, and, but then you go to the other clubs you know you get a, a nice cup draw away and there's a nice press team of eight or nine and very envious there are courses you can get a BA ons in football studies and there's the university at Wembley and and at, this, um, at the Etihad and at Turf Moor which is focused mm. purely on things like football in the media and roles in what you had. I mean, from your side of things, what would you tell somebody who's 18, 19, 20, going through these courses, wanting to do what you did for a decade? What sort of things would you advise them? Just get experience. I mean, you know, you'd get all sorts of emails and CVs from people, oh, can I come in and, you know, can I either apply for a job that's not there or can I come and get experience? And you'd, I'd always try and get a handful of people in where I could and at least just talk to them and just say, look, you know, you, you live locally, go to Chippenham Town or go to, you know, go to Bath City and go and get some experience, go and do their match reports, go and do the interviews because it's all the same stuff, you know, yeah. the same formats and just go and get proper experience because you can get that anywhere. Non, non-league is great to be able to go and get that kind of experience and then step up. But often people are kind of coming out going, oh, I'm, I'm ready, I want to go and work at a football club with no real experience. But nothing can prepare you for, for working at, a, at any football club, I don't, I don't think, whatever the level, because it's just um, so many kind of intricacies and, and people involved and stakeholders and opinions and fans. And there's lots of really good stuff in it, but there's some pretty, pretty, uh, pretty tricky waters to be going through as well. But no, I feel hugely lucky to have done 11 years and working at, at the club I absolutely loved and, and, and still do and kind of follow from afar. Do the, do the positives outweigh the negatives? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, I I look back from a lifestyle point of view and just think, you know, personally, relationships were going by the wayside because you've had there was it was literally six and a half days a week of a full commitment to the job and there was no time really for anything else. Um, but having looked back on some of the times we had and players were there and the managers and you know trying to put positive. Um, just, just trying to promote the club and, and trying to, you know, you feel very lucky to be waking up on a Saturday morning and I'm, I'm going to work in commas, which is effectively watching football. Um, although very strange, going to a match day for a home game and you're driving in an, driving into an empty car park and leaving at six, seven, eight o'clock at night from an empty car park. So um, strange going to games now and <laughs> you're kind of seeing all the other side of it, where there's actually, you know, all that going on around that you just didn't really, you wouldn't see that side of the match day, I suppose. Richie, he's hit it and it's deflected and Swindon Town have the lead we're now getting into the best part for me the bit that I find most interesting sure. and that is to begin with the managers and yeah. and the staff um, have been various managers have already been mentioned but I'm going to go down in chronological order here we started with Andy King uh, he's your first manager but tricky to start with but better relationship later on yeah, 100%. You know, he's very hard on me at the start. And, you know, I probably didn't appreciate the career he'd had as, as going in as, as an employee. as my first job. And you're trying to kind of knock on the door and get program notes every week. And it was just always a kind of blow up of just something would go on. And you're just trying to get, you know, literally just trying to get these program notes, which is a battle every week. Um, and again, that, that was always something you had to get from the manager. But he was very kind of fairly abrasive at the start and but ended up you know I said I, I sort of got on with him really well probably after he'd left Swindon um and going back and seeing him at a, at a sort of colleague's wedding and just had a really good hour of of his time and you know he 
there wasn't probably a better start I could have had as, as someone going into that type of role with with the experience he'd have had and he, you know he was sort of hard on me for for good reason really but but very comical at the same time you know he was great around the office and he'd always just sort of come in with the kind of bacon rolls on a Monday morning and he'd really look after the staff and appreciated it. it was a kind of small club mentality but the work I think he did for the club probably went unnoticed you know he, he was driving to games every night he'd do a reserve game in the afternoon and a kind of a game over at you know, somewhere up north in the kind of Evo Stick League in the evening and he'd be back in for training the next morning and um, huge volumes of work he'd get through all to to sort of try and get the kind of best players for, for Swindon Town. But as, as you say, fans won't ever forget that kind of cigar smoke floating over the dugout. It really nostalgic feeling for me. Um, it's very, very few really get me. The distance, uh, looking at the floodlights in the distance is one thing because that's the same site I... I saw when I was when I was first when I first went to a game in 1990, and seeing Andy King's cigar smoke. Maybe because no other manager did it in, sure. in my time, but um, I, I, I definitely relate relating to to King in the sense that I didn't appreciate his career, and mm. he is just winding down really because of injuries around that time. He, I think Sam, you know, something Sam mentioned the head tennis yeah. or Matt, or, um, Matty Hayward yeah. did, you know, he'd, any new player comes in, you know, King, he's sat on the floor in the office playing, just doing keep ups and, you know, he'd always take, take money off the players, you know, Ben Martin or whoever was coming in as, as a new player always gets sort of done on that. And he just, you, you knew it was coming, but I think one of the, it must've been, I think Eddie Buckley's funeral, we're all, uh, we're all sat around the office and, and Kingy had come into a desk and he'd sort of put his glasses down next to the keyboard and we're trying to sort something out. And then he goes, he sort of goes off somewhere and Rory Fallon comes bounding in and, you know, kind of arms and legs everywhere. And Rory sits down by my desk and we just hear this crunch and he kind of, oh, Rory looks at me. I look at, you know, Rory sort of stands up and he goes, oh no. And these, these twisted sort of prized glasses are just there. And Rory had about 20 minutes of trying to piece these things back together and, he just sort of put them back where they were, and of course, Kingy comes in about an hour later, you know, wearing glasses. And, you know, Rory, you know, you're there, and it's just sort of stunned silence where he puts them on and thankfully walks out of the room without realizing what's happened. Um, just that aura of, of the type of manager he was, there was a lot of kind of respect there, but a lot of probably fear at the same time with, with the way things, things were at that time. And he used to answer the phone as well. Oh, I mean, he'd, he'd just come and sit in the office, and you know, after training, he'd be sat around the office and Again, it just you know you'd have the accounts department. All all the kind of staff were in that same office, and I think probably my first season. Um, I think around the time of the South End game, I think it was probably the October time. Things weren't going so well, and Mark Devlin, the chief exec, his his desk was just part of the office. There's an open plan office, and the the phone would ring, and there was these post-it notes. You know, call call Bobby. Um, and he's sort of looking at it, and Kingy sat there, and the phone rings, and Bobby Gould rings. And uh, you know it's, it's it's Bobby Gould trying to get hold of Mark Devlin, sort of sort of p- pitching for a job that's not there yet. And of course, you know the sort of post-it note gets picked up, and King Kingy dials the number, and, and it's a very one-way <laughs> conversation. And it, you know I don't think he called again, but it's just that sort of stuff you just sat in on, just kind of chuckling to yourself all the all the stuff that went on. <laughs> it is an unfortunate one that I think the loss of players and the budget cuts. Yeah. Sam was saying uh, when he was on that, you know, they had a light-hearted negotiation as friends, but he was yeah. probably more concerned for his job than keeping Sam, yeah. um, which I think is probably a fair assumption to make. In comes Ifeonora. Yeah, very different personality. Um, 
he'd been involved obviously with the youth team and Ian Wone was there as well at the time I think um, very much the kind of youth team coaching staff and again probably very difficult to step up to that type of role but um, you know I think he was always trying to put different stuff in a very intelligent guy and really methodical and trying to get his ideas across and of course having played for the club and you know I remember watching if he played many games for Swindon and you know just hammering in goals and that kind of powerhouse that he was just that kind of style and then coming in as, as a manager trying to make a break as a young manager and of course you're going to take it as a as an aspiring kind of young coach at the time but very difficult coming in working under those kind of circumstances at at that sort of time and I think you know the end of the season there was a change was going to come and obviously the contacts the kind of board had and looking for that uh, different type of approach moved on then to Dennis Wise. He didn't really stand a chance, did he? If he might have been Sam Parkin that mentioned it, the assumption is that Reeves was going to take that job, but he stayed on the on the staff as well. So, you know, again, Reeves he'd given a lot to Swindon over the time, and there's probably various people kind of hoping and pitching trying to get trying to get the job because mm-hmm. it is a it's a good opportunity wherever a manager's position comes up. Yeah. As, as I know, Jamie Pittman's explained before, but. Um, you know, you look at the things like the Forest game at the end of the season, and I think it was about February time that was um, February '06. I think we went up there, and it's just very difficult in terms of budgets. You're coming across at other clubs and having to work with difficult circumstances. Um, mm. But yeah, really pleased if he's gone on to to do do well and do do what he's doing at the moment. Absolutely agree. The next appointment came out of left field for me. Um, I wasn't expecting it. It was kind of yeah. just announced that morning. I just remember. The, Again, I was in Plymouth at the time at university and going, oh, okay. And it was Dennis Wise and Gus Poyet. I was more excited for Gus Poyet, to be honest. And yeah, the, the new era was... A bit showbiz, wasn't it? Yeah. It was very, you know, very Swindon as far as an appointment goes. You know, you look at the kind of managers before and it kind of fitted the mould of someone a bit different having that history. And yeah, great from a club point of view. A real new, a new lease of life and a welcome probably lease of life for those previous years that we'd had. And... Um, I know Dennis came in and he'd do he'd do his kind of training and stuff in the morning before other players arrived and then he'd kind of take training, get training done and he'd go off down the M4 back home. Um whereas Gus lived in the town, he was he was staying and uh you know, staying locally, so Gus would always be around the club and always available to interview and kind of do um, you know, kind of press stuff with, whereas I think Dennis was a, a bit of a different character, but again the the sort of methods they put in are huge amounts of preparation and hard work. And I know certainly with someone like Jarrell Eiffel, just keeping things kind of simple and using the best of players' abilities, um, he really kind of brought different players' games on. But I remember, I think, the October when Dennis Wise was going, I think he'd met sort of um, Ken Bates on the boat and all that sort of stuff. And we were, you know, we, we thought he was well away. And the staff were all sat in the office on the whiteboard, just, you know, I'm sort of scribbling names out of who the next manager could be. Um, and in walks, you know, Dennis Wise walks in the office. He sort of scrub it all off with your arm and go, you know, morning. Um, and it's just it kind of just weird how things happen. He, again, I think the 17 games he did, you just, you know, a whirlwind of of what would have been a very good season. But then again, those opportunities come up for managers, and, and they're off, and you move on to the next one. Bloody Ken Bates, ruining it for us twice now. Unbelievable. I think his last game, his last game as a as a player in Vodacomas was a pre-season at Supermarine. I think he came on um, at Supermarine. So I think his, his last game ever as a footballer was, was, was getting an elbow at Supermarine in the ribcage. I think, I think one of the Supermarine players ended his playing days, but uh, no, I mean, again, having those guys there, you know, Wise and Poirier to be able to, for young players to look up to on, on the training ground was fantastic. Was there any 
ever any sort of, to your knowledge, any plan for Paul Ince to be a manager at Swindon? Because that's why I assumed he he came in. Um, yeah, um, just a bizarre chapter again. He kind of came in, and you're doing the kind of photos at the training ground, and it just never really, never really fitted. You know, you're kind of expecting one thing from a player, and again, there's huge kind of press interest, but. I remember a game we had at home and a ball just sat up on the edge of the box and you're just waiting for him to kind of smash it in under the bar and it went over the town end, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're just kind of thinking, this is this is probably, you know, this is probably not going to end how how you'd want it to as a, as a player, but that experience was was brought in, but again, didn't quite deliver. And again, probably the wages that were there. And, and again, there, there is that north-south divide, I think, again, mm-hmm. in, in terms of players and location and never really worked and again we sort of move on to to Paul Starrick Mm. simply because there was like photos with him doing uh, picking up cones at Swindon training and and the fact that um, he went on to manage Macclesfield straight after and things like that I just I just figured maybe um, that's what his plans were but yes Paul Starrick Paul Starrick was a good one because he'd been he had left his uh, previous employer Sheffield Wednesday I think it was and it was one of those appointments that happened where you think well It'll be good if we get Sturrock in, and it, then it happened. So it was it was really good from my side of things because I saw him as the person that would just get us there. Whether it might not be pretty, but he would get us out of the division, which he did do. Exactly that. I came in with an established coaching staff: mm. you know, Kevin Summerfield, John Blackley. Mm. They all knew the game inside out. I think Sturrock was. I think it was gazelles and giraffes. He'd say, you know, get a get a kind of Barry Core up front, and get some pace out wide, and just get it in the box and get the job done and very much simplified to the game from that point of view but I think more of Sturrock's was what went on behind the scenes I remember the early days of him coming in it was like just changing rooms you're kind of design redesigning the ref's room and he was very into kind of the club and the culture and we and we painted the the ref's room sort of dundee orange <laughs> um, and it was just all the all sorts of interiors of the clubs just getting changed about and new kitchens going in for curly withers and all, all the sort of stuff it was very very much kind of with the staff and trying to get things done, but um, quite unique in his approach in other ways. I remember one of the press calls we had to do, you'd always do a Tuesday and a Thursday before a game. And he was, you know, he was really ill on a Thursday and you kind of presume that no press today. It'll be, you know, we'll get Kevin Summerfield to do it or we'll get a player or whatever. But he said, no, 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 bring him up to the house, you know, and you kind of, you, you turn up and, you just go to sort of Sturrock's house, you know, with the press sort of following you again, only two or three cars driving up, and he sort of just sat on the sofa on on his sort of <laughs> on his sick bed, just more than happy to to give a pre-match interview. So it was like, what the hell? Um, but uh, yeah, very amenable, very good to deal with, and you know, very uh, very forceful as well in, in his own kind of way. But again, overall, you know, a really good good guy to deal with. He was also one of the first, especially within my adult time, without really thinking too much about this, that did like the uh, Sean Hodgett's hour on on radio as well. I I don't remember uh, many before, immediately before that, especially during your time at the club, willing or volunteering their services. Just engaging. He was always keen to do stuff. And, you know, you think stuff like that, it's just so easy to do. And I I was a really big fan of the kind of Friday night fans forums and, You know, I'd, I'd love to see them happen happen now, even. But I think with with the level the clubs at, you know, I think you'd have to get to championship before they kind of sustain that. But as a as a fan growing up, I'd always listen to the, you know, that kind of Friday night with yeah. Steve McMahon coming on and signing. I think Steve Cow was unveiled on a Friday night and things like that. And it was just always a, a kind of a must listen to as a, as a Swindon fan, as, as silly as it would sound. But um, yeah, Sturrock certainly did things in his own way. And I remember I think they came back from. I think we had Macclesfield away on a Tuesday night and 
coach comes into the county ground about two in the morning and, and you just invited all the players and coaching staff or, or certainly all the coaching staff back to his for a full roast dinner at kind of three in the morning um, and he'd just do his own his own thing but again very good good for the club and very good for you know he'd have he'd host barbecues at his house for players and it was just a, it was just a very good kind of club man really I think my only maybe I don't want to call it a problem because it's not really a problem but he did bring in the same players that he'd brought around yeah. the club has kind of meant our squad was going to become a little bit heavy, a little bit heavy, yeah. and and move on because because they were disciples of Sturrock. Um, he, I bet he couldn't believe his luck that Plymouth wanted him back. Yeah, and I think you know Steve Adams came in, mm. obviously JP McGovern and Barry Corr. Hasn't and, he? Yeah. Um, I think we had a game on Sky. It was a Sunday up at Lincoln, and I think we yeah. signed about three players in the week before, and. You know, kind of going out there on Sky, and I think we we got a win. I think it was a pretty high three two, um, and you kind of just all these <laughs> signings coming in just to boost and get us over the line as we did. But um, again, some good experienced players coming in. You know, from I think AD Williams was signed that kind of summer before. Yeah. And you got some really good um, good guys coming in to to kind of secure sort of promotion really. Was that Kevin James, Ashley Grimes, Partridge? Yeah, was Ashley there? Grimes. Yeah, and Partridge. Oh, you never got on. No, yeah, Ashley Grimes came in as you say, and just some some kind of weird and wonderful names, but as, <laughs> as only, only Swindon Town, well, Swindon Town could do really. But um, again, a pretty good squad, and yeah. there was a hell of a hell of a party at the end of that season. I know that much. How so? Oh, just you know, just great, great <laughs> to be involved with. And just just uh, one of those, you know, you kind of you, you work all season to get get things done, and with the, the change of management and everything else, it was just a. A really good time to be to be getting getting the club, and you, you've got to enjoy the promotions. So there weren't that many of them, but even as we kind of got over the line, just as, as we did, but um, just a, just a really good good time to be involved. Now Richie finds Ferry, beaten away by Colgan. Oh, it's loose! It's Ferry again, and that has surely sealed Twindon's place in round two. Malpass we've already talked about um, I, th- I just feel that maybe he pursued players that were never really going to join I, I remember Charlie Mulgrew being yeah. um, one of his hot pursuits that never came to fruition um, it could be and then he brought in a uh, Casale uh, yeah. yeah and um, I've never been more I mean if he ever comes on here I'll probably have to tell him this but I've never <laughs> been more sort of worried by someone's positioning underwhelmed <laughs> oh my goodness me he, he, for someone who'd played MOS which is not a bad level yeah, and was yeah. well liked by, by by Fulham absolutely crazy uh, yeah. positioning yeah it was just weird just again some strange signings and kind of square pegs round holes and things didn't really kind of come off and it was just a bit of a, a kind of difficult time to Although we did, I think he came in sort of January time, and, mm. and he had that kind of summer of, of recruitment and, and things like that. But it just didn't really kind of click. Um, you know, Simon Cox obviously scoring the goals, and he got sort of different, uh, you know, other different kind of players coming in. But as we mentioned before, he, he had that kind of summer summer tour of Fenerbahce and Bucharest, and and he got some sort of interesting games. I, I remember that the Tranmere game. I think it was was the first game of the season, and you had some real real level of interest and a real sense that things were going to be done differently with the new owners and it just didn't quite happen I think it was a bit of a kind of bad run after that and it just yeah just difficult difficult times um, I think we went down to Brighton and there's already murmurs of things you know if it's not mm. going to go well and 
and I think that that was probably the final game. Um, but just if you know, then you kind of go start again of trying to find another manager, and you just kind of here we go again, really after a pretty um, after a pretty sort of uh, you know not that longer period of time. I think it was Histon where he lost me. Correct. Yeah, those, those FA Cup games, you'd always look forward to them. And again, as a fan, you remember the great, you know, the fifth round of Southampton, yeah. oh, and Kevin yes. Horlocks, and what some real massive days, you know, what really good, really good times to be involved as a fan. And the FA Cup would always come around, and you'd think, right, come on, let's just do something in the FA Cup. And, um, you know, even I think in the Tucanu area, we got, you know, we played Leicester, kind of King Power Stadium, and you, you do, it's the opportunity to go and have some really good days. But, Unfortunately, Histon wasn't a really good day at all. I think this year, I mean, third round, uh, sorry, first round 2018-19 um, is the first season where I just was not bothered about who we got, where we were going. It just, it, 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 we are now at a, a place where it's just, well, who are we kidding? And we drew York and I'll go to it and I expect us to win, but... We might not. <laughs> you know, it's as simple as that, isn't it? Did Charlie Mulgrew ever make it down to the county ground for talks or was it never? I think it was relatively close, but I think, you know, the level he was at and I think wages and, and things like that. But, you know, there was you, you always had all sorts of players coming around. I remember showing um, Akin Fenwa around once and obviously he didn't do a good enough job because he, he didn't sign. But there's always these players coming down and you'd walk around in the summer with them or you'd catch a glimpse of someone walking around with their agent and you think, you know, you get excited or, or whatever else would happen. But there was, you know, probably swathes of, of players that we didn't know about that they were close to or not close to. But, um, you know, again, recruitment at that level, there's so many players available. And even now, you'd, you'd like to think as a, a League Two club, as Swindon Town should be an attractive proposition in terms of location and players coming to, to play play football. But, uh, yeah, um Interesting times. Yeah, I think Akinfenwa was a done deal, wasn't it? It was just he wasn't fit or something like he'd that. Broken he'd broken his leg. He'd broken his leg pretty badly, I think, with Swansea. And, um, and I think the physio had some concerns at the time. Mm. And the, the club were a little bit edgy about do we sign him, do we not sign him. But I think, obviously, had they signed him at the time, he'd, he'd have given you quite a good um, quite a good lump of service, given what he's gone on to do. But, Absolutely. Um, Yes, it certainly would have. Danny Wilson. Danny Wilson, I was happy with the appointment of a lot of um, people that I know who support Bristol City just said soft underbelly. But he gave us, he kept us up by bringing in uh, uh, Owen Tudor-Jones and Hal yep. Robson-Kanu and Gordon Greer. And then he gave us a fantastic first full season. Yeah, that was a, a bizarre one. I remember we we appointed him, I think, and I got I was you know back and forth on the phone. Where it was Boxing Day at Leighton Orient, and again I, I remember just kind of pressing go on my laptop to announce the announce the appointment on on the coach somewhere outside Leighton Orient's ground, um, as as was the Swindon Town way of doing things. But I know the 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 involvement of the of the board at the time, and I know Nick Watkins's kind of recruitment hat was coming in, and you'd you'd be looking for managers, and clubs always look for managers who are out of work. You'd you'd be you'd be shuffling through CVs of guys that have, you know didn't have a job, or and, and at the time we were trying to attack it from a different point of view, and looking at guys in work and how you could perhaps leverage someone away, and then you know Danny came up. Um, pretty quickly because I think it had been a, a pretty protracted spell of having you know David Byrne in charge yeah. and other you know we kind of shuffled along to try and get the right person and you know Danny suddenly became available and was with his experience and, and the way he worked it, it, it did turn out to be a, a pretty good fit uh, but yeah as you say that that season we had was um, again getting 
getting to that sort of playoff time. It was a very difficult first spell, and you know, he brought Gordon Greer in and some some pretty pretty key signings and very good contacts within the game. And that's certainly something going back to Andy King, you know, having those good contacts, that kind of phone book to be able to go to players and, and managers and, and dig up experience and having the knowledge of being able to kind of bolster the, the, the squad was really key. But and then as I say we, we've talked about the that kind of playoff season and getting to Wembley mm. with some really, really magical times of, of some really good football as well. Simon Ferry talked about it about the sort of the divide in that second or that second four mm. season. Like it was I think it's safe to say it was Leeds and the rest was it noticeable from an outsider looking in for yourself? <clears throat> yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, the players would all eat at the ground, you know, breakfast at the ground and, and you kind of go through and there, there were the kind of cliques emerging and it was probably a little bit of the of the downfall at the end with with the way the things were happening. But to an extent, to be fair to those guys, that they are natural things are going to happen. You know, mm-hmm. guys, you know, friends are, are going to come down and you're, you're going to lean towards those guys but it, it did it did cause a, a little bit of a divide but on the pitch you know things were, were generally going pretty well and we, we had some you know some real talent on the pitch and certainly the kind of Simon Ferry and Paul Gaddis and seeing those guys kind of just bombing forward was, was a joy to see really. Yeah in that second season Simon I think gets injured and Caddis doesn't play that much in his first season either um, you look at that squad and it's you know the glory of football but also the misery of football you sit there and think how on earth did that side go down uh, yeah just again it, it's just the distances happen with players and managers and you know things don't quite click and the pressure comes on and it is a very closed environment and a very difficult environment for a manager in that sort of situation I know you know the managers you see over time they are just trying their utmost to get things right and some real you know it's just such effort goes into to succeeding at a club, sometimes with again very difficult kind of circumstances, but um, you know Danny's sort of end was was pretty unfortunate, and I know you know the way, the way he was certainly trying to get things um, get things sorted was sort of admirable, you know, admirable really with the way he was all the effort he put in. Is that the reason why he had longer than maybe other managers might have got? Because it seemed that we were pretty terminal long time before he actually did leave yeah. the club. Yeah, he was very well respected within the club and, you know, there's very good working relationships with the board and it was a very kind of clear path and a very good structure across, really. Um, but as you say, it was an unfortunate mm. end. Um, but then, you know, the even more bizarre one was kind of Paul Hart coming in. Yeah, let's talk Paul um, Hart. And that's all I was going to say. I wasn't even going to ask a question. I just, was going to say Paul Hart. Just, just a bizarre, you know, kind of couple of months and... The exits of managers, when you look back, is really interesting. You know, some managers would, when they leave, they'd come around and see all the staff and thanks for your help. And it was, you know, it was fairly cordial. Whereas, I think Paul Hart, we just heard sort of stomping down the stairs and literally wheel spinning out the car park um, at, at the end of that season. And it was kind of just another kind of closed chapter, really. But I think the one one win he had, I think, was you know, it was just a, the four or five ones and <laughs> it was just pretty drab. And you think you're trying to stay up, just kind of go for it. And it was just a you know, I think Parlin came in and a couple of bust ups, and it was just all very fractious and a pretty, uh, a pretty difficult, um, pretty difficult phase of of what was a, an unfortunate chapter of trying to keep keep the club up. Yeah, uh, it was. He just didn't seem hugely bothered. He was dining out on, I think, the Crystal Palace great escape was not as impressive as maybe the club 
try to convince us. Um, no. He, he didn't get many wins, um, but enough, obviously, to keep him up, so you can spin it um, however you like. Um, Bowden came in for the last game or two, which was nice. I'm sure he would have liked it, but then in came Paolo Di Canio. The last game, the last game, actually, Tramier, yeah. as you say. We Billy were... hit the post, so I was gutted for him. <laughs> yeah, so we, Nick Watkins and a couple of the guys at the, the start of that season, we were, we were supporting the sort of Swindon Down Syndromes group as a charity of the year because you get so many requests across the, across the season and not really making an impact with any of these charities. You're sending them a shirt or a football or yeah. we said, look, what can we do to really make an impact? So we went down appointing a charity of the year and I'd always kind of loved cycling before, and we said, look, can we cycle to some away games? It was a bit mad, bit madcap, but you think, well, why not? So we did. Um, you know, we did, I think we did Tranmere, we did Yeovil, Wickham, Southampton, Brighton, and a few other, you know, we cycled to all those games, but we were cycling up to Tranmere, and I think on the Friday, um, Nick uh, Nick Watkins was with us, kind of cycling along, and, you know, he takes a phone call on one of the breaks, and we all sort of fall silent, six or seven of us kind of, and he, he puts the phone down, he goes, chaps, he said, we just had, you know, just had Paolo Di Canio as a kind of, as an interested party. And, he, you, you know, you, you draw sort of drop a bit and go, mm. <laughs> and it was, uh, that that was obviously the start of, of those negotiations. And you're just thinking for a club of Swindon size for, although he didn't have the kind of managerial experience, just someone of the name. And you look at the history of, you know, the Ardelis, the Hoddle, and mm. it, it did kind of fit the mould of just being a bit of a, a madcap appointment, but one that, that might just work. It's 3-0. And it's Alan Reeves. I had a good feeling about Kevin MacDonald because of the way his uh, uh, former players spoke so highly of him um, on social media when he was appointed. They were all saying it's about time, this is it. Swindon can only go on to great yeah. things now and then sadly no uh, really good guy really good to deal with very very nice chap um, you know he'd, he'd had experience he'd been kind of uh, he'd had spells in charge of Aston Villa and the career he'd had with Liverpool he, you know, he wasn't going to take any prisoners um, again really good guy and potentially could have gone on and kind of done done quite good things but I think with with some of the things that that were happening that summer and other um, perhaps in, interference from other other angles he just got fed up with it and said look you know what I don't really need this um, and, and sort of packed his bag literally packed his bags and, and kind of moved on but but again uh, an, another manager on, on uh, another manager of, of many for, for Swindon really we also had quite a few backroom staff come and go what, what would they like just generally across the board what were the characters I mean we had everyone from Mike Walsh all the time we had like Mike Stowell for a day, I think. So I know the Mike Stowell one was bizarre. You know, he came in for a morning and you kind of think, oh, Mike Stowell, you remember him from his playing days. Yeah. And you think, God, oh, this is going to be a you know, really good appointment. And literally lunchtime, you, you kind of say hello to him in the morning and and then lunchtime he's gone and obviously gone on and done done very well for himself. But, um, you know, you kind of, I say, sort of Fraser Digby's coming in and you've got all sorts of guys you're working with and backroom staff and assistants and, really interesting dynamic between the assistants and the managers and some who should, you know, who are very good number twos and get kind of pushed up into that number one role, perhaps when they don't want it. But, um, you know, really just the volume of work that those guys go through as managers or assistants is, you know, is really hard to kind of put into, you know, for fans, I guess, to understand because people are just working, doing all hours. And certainly, again, you go back to the, 
the days of the sort of king and iffies and people just working, you know, so hard behind the scenes to get things right. I remember the Andy King role, you know, the that South End game, I think, and what was the LDV, and there was a real sense, you know, you walk into the ground that night just thinking, you've got to get a result here, otherwise things are, mm. you know, there was kind of Mel Machin and all sorts of people being mentioned for the role but uh thankfully there was a bit of a kind of kickstart after that games but but you certainly feel as as staff behind the scenes whatever the role of, of staff you know the kit man or um commercial and shop and there's, there's a real togetherness behind the scenes and again a real privilege to have, to have worked for the club in those roles really how have the club over the years sort of regarded the fans did the, did the club get frustrated with fan culture and this is not just swindon fans this is football sure. as, as, as a whole if yeah. Um, the club always have to put on the brave face and smile, but were there often times where you were just like to yourself or within the office, just like, come on, guys, just give us a break here? Um, certainly towards the early days, you know, with the kind of, um, you know, as you say, the statement Fridays, and it was a bit them and us as far as how things were, were happening. And again, that comes to come from board level, really, but the kind of those sort of 2000s of when, you know, the kind of. Uh, the, the Watkins and that kind of era of we were really trying to engage all the time and having fans forums and bringing people in and that's actually part of the role like one of the best parts of the role really was was that I could have an impact on on people and be able to to just bring people into the club on a match day and come and meet a player or provide some of those experiences that perhaps at bigger clubs you wouldn't be able to do and and again with a lot of the other backroom staff you know some of them you know the Adam Wainwrights and some of the guys that are still there now being really creative really trying to do some some really special stuff for people um, and providing those experiences to hopefully inspire kind of going forward because you remember say going to games as a fan and I think one of the one of the good things we did actually was down putting in the tunnel was was that kind of uh you know, you've got a whole history board now. Mm. If you go, if you go down the tunnel, and that was um, a really good kind of information piece for players coming in, perhaps not knowing Swindon's history. And I know Sam spoke about it a couple of weeks ago of players coming in and just being able to get a real appreciation for just how big a club Swindon is, and and hopefully can can get back to those heights at some point in the future. I think what helped you and a couple of others as well is the program was always consistently very good um, over the years. And of course, you won an award nearer to the end of your mm. time at the Football League Awards, which was really must be great to put on the CV for you. But it's it's a lot of work program. Yeah, yeah so it's an interesting it's debate, isn't it? Um, you know, whether programs should stay or go. And But I... I always I was trying to actually get programs included with the entry price for match day tickets because yeah. um, I think you know your print goes up the sponsorship value goes up and I think actually if you if you get it into six thousand have hands rather than you know eight hundred or or a thousand then you know your print costs and there's a lot I I love match day programs yeah. obviously having put um, hundreds together but uh, I think. You know, hopefully it's, they're going to be here to stay. But I was never really a fan of the kind of digital edition. Um, but but they certainly took you know a good chunk of a week to put together, especially when you've got a Saturday and then a Tuesday, and you're just spending hours and hours into the night putting things together. But um, again, hope, hopefully appreciated by by some. It's four one. Matt Hewlett defending was awful. Absolutely awful. Who did we get close to appointing? So we've mentioned Bobby Gould took the phone call. You mentioned Gary Speed um, almost got the job at one point before Malpass. Who else got close during your time there? I can't remember the names. There must have been, you know, I'm sure I'm missing out a 
a, a good a good swathe of people. But I say Gary Speed was the one that that kind of um, you know hugely unfortunate. He would have been a, a fantastic manager, I think, yeah. for Swindon Town. That came you know through a link that I had really with um, a, a couple of guys, and you know they got in front of the board and. It was a it was a pretty close one to coming off. And they met a number of times and just couldn't quite. I think the compensation with Sheffield United was the, the kind of sticking point. But um, and again, even the appointing of managers, it was just just so many things would happen. You're waiting for news and timing, and it just it did depend on who the who the board was there and how much information you'd get and how much the media knew and who'd been seen and where they'd met and mm. all this sort of stuff. But um, yeah, so I, I apologise. I'm sure I've missed out a load of names that, that would have been of interest. The, the only sort of names that I remember that Colin Calderwood might have got close at one stage yeah. around the Danny Wilson appointment. Was that... Yeah, I think that, that was one that could have happened. Um, and I think, you know, even... You know, in the, in the not too uh, recent past, I know names have come up on forums and things of you know potential managers for the for the future. And I know Colin Calder was one that always people have, people have always looked to, but it never really feels like it. I think had he wanted it, it, w- it would have happened by now. I think. Yeah. Um, and it's that kind of love affair. Perhaps sometimes doesn't always. <laughs> always kind of come off I love Colin Calderwood yeah um, I don't think I could take him or Sean Taylor take it over Swindon and it I all know, going wrong I that I, I just I'm, I'm not willing to roll the dice on, no. on on my heroes to be honest but Paolo Di Canio comes in yeah just um, that press conference that first press conference was just crazy and I know his agent played a really big part in uh, managing him and managing um, you know other things that went on within the club really and I think that press conference, the interest was just huge, and mm. I think the record we had—not necessarily at that press conference, but one answer to a question was 45 minutes wow. um, with the BBC. And I think other other managers, you'd, you'd be in and out of the press conference in sort of 20, 25 minutes. It would just be you know short, sharp answers. But you know, Decanio just ran on and on, and it was you know arm, the arm movements and the expressions, and it was just so deep in in thought. But you know, of course, you you then had the the famous quote with sending him off every week and you are just sat there as a press officer kind of chuckling to yourself just going, it's, it's kind of brilliant as a as a fan hat and as you're just kind of going so much against the grain of of, of what should be happening um but yeah very good for, for swindon in a lot of ways not so good in others but again it was a really high profile appointment that brought a lot of media brought a lot of contacts and yeah just a, a kind of really interesting kind of going slightly off off piece really with with the attendances and you, know, you look at they they've rose a little bit, but it was probably the start of an era of um, you know things being more difficult for people to get to the games and trying to lift those attendances because even in those days, you know, we weren't getting sudden, we weren't suddenly getting twelve thousand no, fans. Not at all. Um, even with that, so in, you know, some of the most recent arguments of people saying, "Oh, if we had him back, we'd have the gates." And, well, we didn't even in those days. So, and again, being top of the championship in, I think it was what '97 or mm-hmm. so, we didn't. didn't. You know, we, we had five thousand in with kind of Chris Caspers and all those um, sorts of guys. So, yeah, really, really interesting how things have changed from a, a fan and attendance point of view. But, but Decanio was certainly box office in terms. You know, you'd have people booking tickets just behind the dugouts you couldn't see any of the game yeah but just to be able to come and sit and <laughs> sit and watch um what was going on on the bench and you know it was just again just a sort of crackpot really did you have any sort of relationship in, in with him or was he just was he distant with the uh, the, the staff no i mean you, you had to you, you know every manager that comes in you've got to try and get on a pretty good um 
pretty good kind of level par pretty quickly and try and develop things and try and help and you're, you've got a quite you know you've naturally got quite a close working relationship but um it was trying to set the parameters of look you know things would go go missing or go awry so you're literally kind of trying to put things in black and white that are happening and duties you've got to do and media wise he was he was very good internally um obviously kind of love the media outside um but yeah i mean as far as the club goes you'd, you'd have the kind of thursday night um football against the staff and you know he'd be out you know local italians and you know we we did a few things you know commercially which were promising but um, again, there was a lot of he. It, a lot of it was Paolo's ways, or or kind of no way. Um, and again, there were some things went on that again have been publicised with um, you know different personalities and mm. some unfortunate kind of situations. But I think with that level of character that you know um, people getting kind of carried away with uh, you know kind of who who the ownership um, and you know trying to have control of of that was very difficult as it proved by trying to bring in sort of William Patey to kind of placate things. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, another another incredible chapter really. You mentioned it before, but what constitutes as a as a falling out with Paolo Di Canio? It was just a sign. It was just a constant signing of of players really, and you know players coming in and playing two games. You know Ibrahim Atiku coming in and playing at Sirencester in a pre-season, and he signed a year or two's contract, mm. and then suddenly mm. he's two games later no he's no good anymore well we've just given him a two-year contract and that budget was gone and you, you're trying to you know obviously not my role to be explaining that but the the board and things trying to sort of sit down and say look here's the budget and most of that's gone now and you're kind of in you know july and august and just all the constant stream of players coming and going and being getting rid of players and you know the, you know the crew game at the start of the season you know, three nils and oliver rissa just hammering up you kind of a really good start and you just think things are going to fly and then the Macclesfield and the Rottweilers and Chihuahuas and <laughs> you know it's just some crazy times of, of all the stuff that, that kind of went on that season and a lot of it was fairly transparent from a fan's point of view you were kind of living it and breathing it and following what was a, a bit of a kind of cult around the country um, with a with a scarf above your head as a, as a manager on a pitch somewhere Goodwin loses out he's onside and this time it's five. And this time, Eric Savern doesn't miss. Hundreds of Swindon Town players, whether they were here for a day or here for a couple of years. Um, who, when you sort of think about it, who are the ones that, from a personal level, stand out the most? Um, one of the first ones was probably Steph Migliaranzi, um, who I think my first week there was, we had a player appearance on a Friday night and I think at the time Steph was on a week to week contract and we had the fire service coming in at kind of nine o'clock on Friday, who we were kind of doing the 92 and, uh, you know, straight away Steph just volunteered himself so that I've no problem. And we were kind of sat for kind of three hours in the office just waiting for these guys to turn up and collect a shirt and just one of the, one of the nicest guys you, you'd wish to meet really. And again, very lucky to have, you know, the kind of Craig Eastons and Sam Parkins and some really, you know, really good guys who, who would kind of go the extra mile, but they just kind of understood how how football clubs worked and a lot of the demands you'd have to make on people. But, you know, certainly you then go the other side of the coin, the players just didn't, you know, who wouldn't necessarily be interested or wouldn't kind of do the press if you needed them to, but you'd always, you'd always keep a few of your good talkers in the back pocket so you get you know you get beat away on a Tuesday night and everyone needs to go back on the coach so you, you just kind of wheel them out on those occasions rather than 
rather than others. But um, yeah, some really good good characters to, to deal with over, over the course of time. But again, I think those you know uh, fans will be aware of those naturally from from what they did kind of on and off the pitch. I was watching that glossy propaganda documentary Manchester City on um, on sure. Amazon, and they were they, they, it was clear that they were super keen, sorry, to show that the players were having great relationships with the backroom staff. Mm. Um, so you know they're, they're they're hanging out in the boot room. Did you ever have players come in and put their feet up in the office and just sort of all uh, the time, all the time? It's just how how it happened because it was such a small a small club behind the scenes. You'd, you'd have to come past the office for um, you know coming into training and that sort of things when training was at the ground or at the Liddington and yeah and again you know remember this was before the days of player liaison officers and things like that so you know players moving to Swindon needing houses and cars and all you know booking holidays and all sorts of stuff would just come across your desk bizarrely but um, yeah there, there were some really again just guys really wishing to help out and um, but then you've got the kind of the town thing of you know lads going out on a Saturday night and it's all great if you've won but um, you know, becomes becomes a bit more difficult if you're if you're out in town on a on a Saturday night on on the back of relegation or you know things like that. And players often um, sometimes not not making the right decisions. But uh, yeah, gen- generally some really good players to be deal with and, and privileged to get to know. Really, did you have to deal with those sort of night out blunders <laughs> from a press officer point of view? Yeah, for unfortunately some sometimes and just car crashes and. Um, li- literally car crashes on the way to games. I think Albert Jarrett had one on loan, and you know uh, some of the when the snow came down. I think another time a couple of players, you know, all sorts of stuff. You just got to try and unwind and unravel, and you know the Kevin and Manqua thing, and it's just all sorts yeah. of different episodes that would pop up. And of course, these are all, you know, by the end of my time, oh, you know, you've had that before, and you could kind of call upon experience, but. Um, at, at the start it's just another thing to try and mop up we always like to think that footballers have got a great knowledge of football clubs but because they've been spending all their, their lives playing the game they don't really pick up um, a fans level knowledge were, were there players that were super keen to sort of just absorb themselves in Swindon Town Football Club yeah I think players who would do well on the pitch you know you'd, you'd soon become ingrained in in their way that they were trying to impress and obviously there were sort of talents there and they'd naturally become more more involved in the club and the community appearances and become kind of popular figures and sometimes you'd literally just have to say to people that you've just got to engage a bit more and you can do a few things to really kind of help help yourselves and I think the relationship with fans wasn't necessarily a difficult one if you were willing to engage and and put the effort in and um, you know the the experienced players coming in kind of got that um, you know kind of Darren Wards and Ad Williams and all those guys are really good for kind of coming in and kind of making an impression. Um, but some of the younger ones, and you know, it's very hard sometimes. You're, you're thrust on, you know, you've got your first professional contract and you go and do, you know, you've got your car, you're renting a house, and you know, it's all very difficult in terms of trying to make a way for yourself and very cruel when injuries strike mm-hmm. after perhaps only 20 games as a professional. And that's game over as a career, mm-hmm. um, you know. And some of those guys. You know, don't have a lot else to fall back on. So there's also trying to put that support network in for for people to kind of pick themselves up when things don't go right. How do the club regard the veterans, players coming in who you, who, you know, personally, if I'd known them as a fan, you, it was a real privilege to meet some of these guys and kind of help them and show them around and, and get them involved. And um, I think a real good move by the club to have you know the former player association. Yeah. I think it's been great. Um, it's been really, really good to to have that involved. 
and I think hopefully again with with you guys doing the podcast, it can be a kind of natural link to go forward, and hopefully that can really pick up and really kind of form something um, really productive for the future. Because I think there's a lot more work we can do for former players. Um, I think there's a lot of fan interest in there, as is proved um, by the good work you're doing. And and I think hopefully in the future, and some of those players can again be helping kind of fans and players, current players coming in to get a real understanding of the club and you know, just be around on match days and I think it all adds to the experience. Fingers crossed. There's one other topic before we start to close that I want to talk about and that is the transfer window. It's it's become a whole thing now. Um, it used to just be you signed players, then you weren't able to sign players, now it's a whole event. What was your general experience within your time, within your role within the transfer window? Um, good and bad really. You know, you've got the ones where you're you're getting a player, you know, the Simon Coxes coming in, and at, at the time you don't know what they're going to go on and do. But quite exciting times when you're bringing in that type of player and those ones that come off, and then you've got your kind of you know the Marlon Pack evening and all that sort of stuff where you're getting interviews in the can and everything's done and dusted, and you're literally just ready to press kind of go. Um, and then someone's got to go and tell the manager, by the way, these these three <laughs> guys you've you've signed, you've got to kind of put it into reverse um but yeah you, you just bizarre um, oh, that's, that, and, let's start that from scratch then so let's yeah. let's go with the marlon pack danny green sean Wright, uh, bradley yep. wright phillips yeah bradley wright phillips so they were all signed they were late into the night and, you know tom atrebski and i were all up in one of the sponsors lounges the players had all come through one by one we'd done the photos we got the videos and you're kind of really happy as a press team thinking yeah we've we've nailed this um, we've got everything in done and you're going to have some really good really good interviews and it's all edited and you know, you've know got to do the photos and it's all ready to roll and, and suddenly then you kind of you know nothing's announced and you haven't got the go ahead and you're kind of again waiting for the white smoke from the boardroom and, and then I think uh, Jeremy Ray had the unfortunate job of going to kind of phone the manager and just say look you know things have gone gone uh, completely awry and obviously the, the kind of start of the end really um, of of a kind of pretty pretty torrid time um but you know yeah you often sat in an office with again the players and managers and waiting for things to come off or not come off and you know but then you've got the more kind of desperate times of of where there's no news and you're just trying to waiting for for a player to come through the door mm. um but uh yeah some real real contrast of emotions and but of course you're kind of just trying to put a positive outlook for for, for supporters and, and for the club really what was Marlon Pack like? Because Marlon Pack was signing on loan, but he was going to join. There was a Cheltenham went to town with this because they were going like he's he's sort of he's, he's not in the right place to play at the moment, things like that. Was he sat in Swindon going, "This is it. This is the start. I'm going to break down yeah. walls for you. This is going to be great." Obviously, Danny Green and Brad and Bradley Wright Phillips were uh, were um, coming in on loan, but. Bradley Wright Phillips did all right for himself, didn't he? And Marlon Pack did fantastic. He's become a yeah, legend. But I think that it's one of those nights again, which is just, they were three big signings. Huge <laughs> signings, really. Oh, huge signings, financially and profile. And really, um, really, you know, would have been really big, big signings. And I think it was just, a, you know, real disappointment for everyone that those didn't come off and, they, and we weren't able to kind of get, get that done. Because I think had Swindon, got up as a championship product would have just been a real asset to be able to, you know, for Andrew Black to be able to move on and, you know, you kind of, you'd be going up with a Matt Ritchie in your side and some real standout quality with a, you know, a kind of a box office manager. And then you, then your crowds are coming out. Then you are going to be getting 12, 14,000 every week. And 
But as you say, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. I'm going to ask, you may not remember, but can you think of any players that we almost got over the line across your time at Swindon that we just missed out on that haven't been mentioned? I'm going to be a huge disappointment here, but again, you're just so you know memory and trying to focus on getting players done. But there there must there must have been loads that I didn't even know about. But I say certainly the Paul Gascoigne one coming in is probably um, one of one of the biggest. You think you know he could have been in a Swindon Town shirt, but probably at that stage of his career, um, even even the way he his kind of career was just just to have him in and from a sort of interest point of view and just to, to have that kind of player in, involved at that, that that time would have been would have been really good but um, there must have been you know hundreds of other, other players who were, who were kind of close but literally no cigar I don't believe you Martin 1-0 Swindon Town thoroughly deserved opening goal came to an end 11 years was it detrimental to your support of Swindon? Uh, yes, for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very hard leaving. I think the summer of 2013, when I left, you kind of, um, you know, very. It was a pretty tough time to be away from the club, and then, you know, you, you're looking at the way things are done. And obviously, Tom then, uh, Tom then sort of came in and, and ran things. And we, I mean, we actually interviewed I think three or four other people for that for for my job. Um, and Tom, Tom didn't get the job sort of first off. We we interviewed another. Um, we interviewed another uh, sort of five or six people, a couple of guys from London, and and I, Tom had been sort of more or less coming on work experience at, at the start, and uh, you know the other guys just didn't fit right, and you're kind of looking at it, just going, this isn't really going to work. So I just phoned Tom up and said, look, can you come back in and and just gave him the job. He was encyclopedic knowledge of Swindon Town and a huge, a huge fan and a really good guy, and it was really great to be able to give him that that kind of leg up and he, he did a really, really good job for the club and is doing well now with Aston Villa. So, um, but it was a difficult time. I kind of had to step away from a, a kind of fan hat and, you know, I was back playing rugby and it was a, it was a difficult time to be, cause you're kind of involved and you're looking at how things are done, not done and wanting to have a, a kind of impact on things from a, from afar. But it was just a, you've got to kind of just step away and drop it really. And, and now I'm, I'm sort of back and trying to go to games when I can with a fan hat. And of course you think, Oh, this isn't right. And you're commenting on managers and players and <laughs> performances and you're kind of back, back with that role now. So yeah, great, great to be back and certainly going to games under lights. It's all that it brings back all those, all those good memories. I'm amazed you have time to go and watch Swindon. You are a very busy person. You do a lot of work um, with charities and, and uh, at Fairford. So that must be, that must be quite a rewarding thing. Yeah, we've done quite a bit of stuff. Both, you know, I mean, I've been involved with Fairford for a long time now. We've got a really good, good team of people um, doing a lot of things there, and I'm involved with a lot of other kind of a lot of other things and businesses. And and uh, again, sort of home life now, thankfully, is settled and married, and you know, all the all the sensible things to be um, to be enjoying and just enjoying life, having a normal life. Because, as I say, work working at Swindon Town is, is certainly not a normal life. What are your favourite memories of your time working there? I say I say the, you know the people, the, the friendships you develop in the office, and the managers and the players, and just all having being on that same side, just being behind the scenes and enjoying the highs, but also kind of living through those kind of lows together. And it was a really really enjoyable time to be um, and, a, and a privilege to be working for the for the club you support really. And you know whether it be a, a long trip away or whatever, it was just just brilliant to be going to those games and covering the club and really trying to do your best for the for the club you support and say engaging with supporters and it was just just a privilege to be involved and a a very special time overall Chris Tennant thank you very much thank you very much 
Good run by him and now match goal. Below Strangers is an independent Swindon Town fan podcast. The music was expertly created by Matthew Kilford and the podcast artwork is by the super talented John Daglish. Thanks for listening. Come on, Swindon. Hi, LS Pod fans, it's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs, like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy, or even Steve McMahon. Perhaps you'd prefer to channel the power of McPlant, like Darren Ward, or maybe five chicken selects, one to enjoy for each time Ben Gladwin joined. Yep, there's one spare, but there's still time. And you don't need super scouts or data solutions to get your hands on any of these. McDelivery through the McDonald's app brings them all to you. At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times.